Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. What could possibly be learned from training things like weapon retention, close quarter combat, and gunfighting when your opponent is nothing but a paper target? And yet, this is the status of so many training protocols found in law enforcement. Leave it to Jeff Gonzalez and Craig Douglas to save you from these antiquated practices. Here it is, episode 533. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. Welcome to another episode of the premier podcast of Strength and Conditioning. I am joined by some unique individuals today, and it's pretty cool because we actually get to have uh, sitting across the table for some that we've been planning a Vortex. We've been prepping for this for years, and the fact that we finally get to do it, I'm pretty excited. So we're joined by Mr. Jeff Gonzalez. Yes, sir. And his good friend, Craig. Craig Douglas, that's yeah, correct. Douglas. Absolutely. We are both here sitting across from you. And as I was mentioning earlier, I have to avert my eyes every now and then. <laughs> Well, uh, it, it's cool. I mean, geez, we've known each other almost 10 years now, over 10 years. Over 10 years, easily. Yeah. Over 10 years, yeah, yeah. And I, I love to tell the story about how John and I met because um, all, what a lot of people don't realize is that, uh, like, at that point in my life, I was uh, kind of post-divorce, and it was in a really shitty place physically, emotionally, and we started on a project that was, first of all, awesome it was revolutionary for me as far as like the physical conditioning that i went through with that and and what i was most impressed with was just how well you were able to put it together so easily we sat down and brainstormed and i think we did that for about three years three years and i i can i i attribute everything that i have right now all the physical attributes that i have right now to that three-year period of just 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 hard work, just moving it every day, and it was fantastic. So, you know that built that built the foundation for the uh, for the success of our relationship. But then we had a great quid pro quo because you were excited to to take on the new challenges of the shooting world, and so that's kind of like how everything kind of started. I remember the first time we went to what was the name of that place? Rahagis. Yeah. <laughs> And we went there like, wasn't it like a, a week or a day after somebody was killed on the range yeah. from a ricochet? Yeah, no, some, some guy went out there and basically had a, a suicide. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was like a good way to start our, 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 our trip out there. Yeah, well, don't you remember they had all this paperwork? And yeah. Like, uh, like, like they're basically in the signature. They're like, please, will you initial here that you won't kill yourself on the range? And I'm like... Is that going to nice. stop somebody? I, well, well that, that was my thing. Like, it's just stopping people. Like, the fact that, oh, well, I, I signed it. I can't kill myself. Ah, damn it. But damn that, it. But that's what they needed for liability. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. we showed up unknowing and realized, like, where is everybody? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty empty there. Yeah, I was, was surprised. Yeah. I was surprised. Yeah, but that, that started it all. We've had such a great relationship since then. So, Well, when, uh, when I was in Kansas City, so I, I, um, I, I didn't grow up around guns. My dad was a lawyer and basically hated, like, not hated guns, but just didn't want them in the house. So I didn't learn to shoot until we went to Boy Scout camp. Mm -hmm. And then I learned to shoot arrows and guns there. And then uh, I was so dirt poor in college, owning weapons wasn't really necessarily an issue. But, uh, you know, being a rhetoric major and reading a bunch of like history on like the United States and also our founding fathers, like a big thing I remember being like, you know, if you're gonna be a citizen and pay taxes, like the right to bear arms and also like the responsibility to be proficient with weapons uh, was impactful for me. So when I got to the NFL, I was like, now I got some money. I'm going to get some guns, but I didn't know where to get any. Yeah. So um, one of my buddies who I used to ride motorcycles with was like, yeah, I got a bunch of guns. So we went out and we shot a bunch. And uh, I ended up with a couple pistols from him. And it wasn't until I went to Kansas City, I lived pretty close to a gun range. 
And so it was on uh, Monday nights, we'd either go to the bar or I'd just go to the gun range yeah, yeah. and just buy something <laughs> and be like, what about this? And I just bought random shit. I'd be like, oh, what's this? Uh, <laughs> that explains a lot. What's this Smith & Wesson 500? Give me that thing and a, and a round of those. And then I'd get done shooting it and be like, hey, can I sell this back? This sucks. And so I just bought all these crazy ass guns with no... Uh, like no real internet or yeah. like anybody necessarily guiding me in any way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just randomly just being like buying and then I ended up with all these just like such a, a, a hodgepodge of weird weapons. Yeah. And then when I moved back to um, Newport Beach, I wanted to get more proficient with shooting and that's when I met, you know, Andy Stomp and yeah, a lot yeah. of those guys. And so uh, when I got an opportunity to go out and shoot with you, um, I'd always wanted to be a good shooter. But uh, much like anything, like I didn't really have a foundation or there wasn't mechanics. Mm -hmm. And I'm real good on like working within a blueprint and a framework. If you can teach me something, like I'm, uh, it's kind of a, probably not a PC term, but I always joke, I'm like an autistic monkey. <laughs> that if I can see you do something, I yeah. can mimic it. And yeah. that's like, that's how I think I was successful in football. I could watch film and see how somebody was doing something and then be able to go out and actually um, imitate them and perfect it. Yeah. And so same thing with the shooting. As soon as I saw the mechanics, I was like, oh. Okay, if you can do that, I can do that. Well, the other thing that I've always enjoyed, too, about dialoguing with you is the interrelationship between the physicality of shooting. Not just the act of shooting, but the physical aspect of shooting. Everything from muscle recruitment to, you know, what you're, what you're really focusing on in training. And that also changed. Um, like, I, I understood what I wanted, but it wasn't until starting to interact with you that I kind of figured out, like, how to make everything work. Well, um, whenever people ask me about our relationship, I'm like, do you remember the movie, uh, um, what was it, uh, Avatar? Mm -hmm. Right? Do you remember like the broken little marine? Yeah. yeah. That was like you when I met you. <laughs> I was like the big monkey and you were like the little broken marine and I had to carry you around. But what was amazing was how fucked up you were. Remember when you came to the gym? Dude, Craig, I don't know if you've ever told you this. He shows up to Balboa, which was my, the gym that I owned. Okay. He was an absolute fucking disaster. He couldn't bend his wrist. He couldn't do this. Right. His shoulders, everything. And I remember just sitting yeah. down and we did that assessment. Like, like my pro, like my comment to him was like, if this is where you are, like where, like where do we go? And more importantly, you can't like take any more abuse. And yeah. I think the problem was you were just stuck in a bad training modality, and mm. your movement was kind of rough. And by going back and kind of fixing that, all of a sudden you're like, I can do things. Again. Yeah, it was true. I mean, that you know, it wasn't like I had a, a bad career in the Navy, but it's a hard career. Yeah. You know, you ask anybody in, in any of the armed forces, and it's it's an, it's not an easy thing, and especially at that high level. And I got lucky. I didn't I didn't have like as many injuries as some of the other guys that I know, but. I would say the job you did before was a lot of overuse stuff, mm. you know, I mean, For and, sure. you know, the wrist injury and just everything <sighs> felt like overuse stuff. So I think Craig can appreciate this. My wrist injury was a result of being on target and punching a dude in the face, like nice. fucking like literally wanted to push his teeth through the back of his throat. Nice. And I learned that mm. that is not a good thing to do with your shooting hand. He beat the shit out of your hand. Dude, I, I fucked up my wrist so bad, it's still messed up. Nice. Yeah, so, and I remember I got off target, <clears throat> and it kind of hurt at that time, too. And when I got off target, it just, like, swelled up. So I had I had basically, uh, like, destroyed virtually all those little metal carpals that we have yeah. right here. Just totally, they're, they're all fused and jacked up and whatnot. And so I still feel it to this day. Like, every time I'm doing something, I'm like, Ugh. So, yeah, note to self. 
don't hit somebody in the face. Or never hit them with a close fist. No, that correct. Like the open hand, <laughs> like the open hand slap to the face, which is actually way more humiliating. It is. Like I've been punched in a. I'm telling you, I've slapped I, somebody before. Yeah, no, it's a that's a bad. One. I, I do like slapping people. I do. It's funny. Or punch them in the neck. Well, I it's so an like awesome place to punch a guy. I, you know, as a young frogman, it was just like destroy. Right. destroy and you know I caught a lot of shit because I was always kind of like a smaller specimen within my right. my group so how do you guys I mean uh, um, so how do you guys know each other like I mean obviously both from the shooting world and uh, training kind of deal but I was wondering uh, how you guys I think it. we've been circling around each other probably since the early 2000s um, I was uh, yeah easily. easily Jeff's Jeff's brand predates mine I started teaching under the brand Shivworks in 2003, I uh, teach globally uh, in 46 states in the U.S., 11 countries outside of the U.S., four branches of the military, five federal law enforcement agencies, and a small standing contract with uh, the intelligence community within the Department of Defense. So, um, what that's not. Let me now, just interrupt him real quick. What he's not explaining is his his the artwork that he does, and I think what Craig has. What Craig has done within this industry has been to unify the the two forms of combat that we typically see, the shooting and the hand-to-hand. And he unified that together, he codified that into a package that is really hard to put into words. You have to actually go through the package to actually appreciate what he's done. And what is also interesting is the history about how this all came to be. Like most of everything that I've done stems from something that impacted me in my career. And the same thing happened to Craig. So he doesn't talk about that a lot, but it's in my opinion, probably one of the most important things that has led to his success is the history of where it came from. And I can certainly, sorry to put you on the spot like that. Now I'm going to sit back and I'm going to wait to hear this history. Yes. Yes. Well, I can, I can certainly opine on that. So I was a, uh, I was a sheriff's deputy police officer in uh, South Mississippi. I did a 21-year career from 1990 to 2011. The vast majority of that time was spent as a, uh, a drug cop, a SWAT cop, or both simultaneously. So I worked dope for 11 years, and I had a two-year undercover stint from 1996 to 1998. Well, that's all I did for that two-year time period. It was mainly by drugs. Um, I think I stopped counting. <laughs> Somewhere around the 600 mark, and this was during the crack cocaine epidemic, did quite a bit of that. And, and a lot of stuff happened in cars. <clears throat> so uh, sold drugs, did a, a, a bunch of prostitution operations, did a murder for hire with the feds. And, and it was an interesting time period for me in that it just gave me some novel perspective on criminality that still informs how I teach and what I teach to this day. So, um, as odd as this is going to sound, part and parcel for living that life was getting assaulted and robbed, and I was assaulted and robbed a lot in that two-year time period. I was robbed a total of nine times in two years, and and as weird as this is going to sound, most of those were business-as-usual robberies, and and in several (laughs) cases, within a day or two, I'd go back and buy drugs from the target that had stuck a gun in my face to couple of days before and people would ask me, well, the fuck would you do that? It's like, well, that's what crackheads and addicts do, dude. Well, so and they also that's, don't remember. Yeah, <clears throat> and, and sometimes they do, right? And then sometimes they just want to see if you come back, you know, because that's what an addict's going to do. I mean, you just beat the shit out of him and abuse him. He's going to come back for, for dope. So mm-hmm. um, 
So most of those, uh, most of those uh, went mostly okay. I had a couple that didn't. Um, I lost some hearing this year fighting over a gun in a car. Uh, the, the, the round discharged about a, about an inch from my head, and then um, I had a skull fracture also from a socket wrench on a two-ounce powder cocaine deal and was almost beat to death in a hotel room. Um, and none of those events that, that occurred, those, and those were two pivotal events, and there were a host of smaller ones, but none, none of my training, and I've been a lifelong martial artist, uh, I've been a soldier in the 80s or Army in the Ranger Regiment and a Mac Infantry unit. I'd come in law enforcement and was doing every trendy, cutting edge martial art, and, and none of what that stuff. What about fire hands? What about fire what about hands? Fire hands? <laughs> I had some fire hands. I've done that at some point, back when it was trendy. Maybe some capoeira. <laughs> but but anyway. You know, uh, what about the mixing capoeira and fire hands? Right, oh, exactly. Deadly. That, maybe that would Deadly. But, uh, but, but none of that stuff really, um, not, none of that stuff really worked, and it, it, it all failed me pretty much when I needed it the most. Mm. So <clears throat> what I saw was um, an incredible disconnect between the reality that I was experiencing as an undercover officer and what was offered within the training side of law enforcement. And as I started investigating the military and, and eventually open enrollment, there, there simply wasn't a training modality or there were no strategies, tactics, or techniques to look at the best case of how to deploy a gun in a clinch or a ground fight where every previous practice suggested that someone, when they're caught in that range and need to deploy a weapon, they should karate their way out, <laughs> break range, and get to the gun. Yeah, well, I mean, everybody's seen, you know, uh, Steven Seagal, and the, every, every, every movie, you know, Chuck Norris. And the, and the training modalities were always... Um, on ranges with cardboard where the most resistance you got from the cardboard was when a staple busted and it flapped at you <laughs> in the wind. That's, that's the most resistance. Sounds very dangerous. All of those techniques were, all these close quarter shooting techniques were validated under. And um, so basically what I did, did kind of, you know, to cathartically release some of my angst about my failures in my UC heyday, I started a, a local fight club and took a mishmash of equipment on motorcycle helmets, the marking cartridges of the day, and MMA gloves, and, and started kind of using all this stuff well outside of the manufacturer's recommended guidelines for use. <laughs> and, and you could argue about whether I should have done that, but again, it gave me a training modality that was not available, and that Fight Club gave me watching, gave me a laboratory to start observing the best practices for getting a gun out at that range. And in and, and the very beginning, we didn't even know what we were looking at. It's like, we didn't know why people won and lost, you know? So it took a while to really realize, okay, that's the pattern for success. That's the pattern for failure. And then after I realized what was going on, well, how do I teach that? What do I call that? So that kind of led that, that period, and that was probably 98 to 2000. 
it took a while to see what was going on. And then accidentally, because there was never any intention to do any of this, I was writing about some of this stuff and people just started getting interested. And they started asking for um, more explanations and, and photos to accompany the explanations and video. And that led to some DVDs that came out and, and not just gun stuff, knife stuff. Um, some products, and I think in 2003, I taught my first open enrollment class, and I'd been teaching for a long time in law enforcement. I was an academy instructor, did all that. But I had this opportunity, and I was badgered for a couple of years by a friend of mine who was like, dude, nobody's doing this the way you're doing it. You really need to hang a shingle out. I'm like, eh. And at the time, we were, uh, we were just getting our asses kicked by methamphetamine, by hillbilly meth. I think we had in 99, maybe like three meth labs in 2000. We had like 190. It was insane. So it was fun to write about and, and talk about, but I, I had no interest in doing some kind of, you know, training outside of law enforcement. So my buddy badgered me and badgered me and badgered me. And finally, I was getting married for the first time. And um, <laughs> my wife. We've all been there. My wife wanted. <laughs> A pretty extravagant wedding in Vegas, and I was bitching to my buddy about not being that able to. That should have probably been the red flag. Yeah, I, yeah he would have thought. <laughs> he would have thought. The burned hand teaches best. And I, I burn my hands a lot. So, anyway, uh, he he's, I was bitching to him about not getting enough overtime, and he uh, seized the opportunity and said, Hey, man, I've been trying to get you to do this for a while. So do it, and uh, why don't you just let me set the classes up. You don't have to do anything except show up, do your thing. And I didn't know anything about open enrollment. Jeff had been doing that for a while. And I, I did my first class, and I was just amazed at the, uh, the interest and the engagement that I had from invested, interested people compared to police officers in service or academy people that had to be there. It was just part of their, you know, choice. Were most of them civilians? Most of them were in the very beginning, which has now kind of just gone completely the opposite after 19 years. But um, yeah, and, and, and just Rima, it motivated me. I was like, wow. And they brought out the best in me, and I did another one, and I did another one, and I did another one. And then uh, finally, after eight years of brand building, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I had two full-time jobs, and things were getting fairly toxic at the sheriff's department, and uh, our sheriff was probably going to get indicted soon, which he eventually did. Oh, and uh, yes, so it's 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 William Faulkner Southern grotesque at its best. It <laughs> truly is. Um, so a lot of us saw the writing on the wall. It was time to get out, and uh, so I did it full. Started doing it full time when I retired in '11. So it's been 10 years of full-time work. Um, I travel about 43 weeks a year, a lot on the road, quite a bit, live on the road. But I, I'm best known in the industry for niche problem solving, I'm, and I drew from probably my undercover time, you know, and internalizing that and then being able to turn that into something teachable and coachable. I'm best known for these niche problems. Uh, a gun and a clincher, a ground fight, fighting in a car, what that looks like, uh, utilizing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a way to move, but 
the confines of a cube turning it into something between Brazilian jiu-jitsu and rock climbing. So it's a it's an interesting way to move, and it's it's an interesting movement pattern. It's kind of hard to visualize that right now, but I can tell you that <clears throat> if you are in a phone booth and you have to fight a bear, that's kind of what you can expect. And um, like one of the things too that Craig hit on that I don't think that I think is is something that translates both of our industries is the apathy towards training when somebody is like the difference between somebody who wants to be there and somebody who has to be there right. sure. you know you guys see that when well, you're doing it at the, at the at the unit level and then we see it when we're well, doing it at a unit. we worked with the u.s army uh, big army yeah which was on that side where uh, yeah i mean there were people that were ready to kick you know uh, kick in the doors and there are other people that were just counting the minutes it's so true and it does it, i mean unfortunately something as exciting and important as the subject that craig specializes in would still get the same type of apathy and a lot of that has to do with um the mindset of the individuals and but also i believe one of the biggest problems that we see is the toxicity within the culture of whether it's law enforcement military whatever that case is there is a there's a and it, it, it's gotten, it, it ebbs and flows. Some, sometimes it's, it kind of eradicates itself in certain areas. Other times it seems like it's a Petri dish of just shit growing, right? And I think right now we're seeing, while, while on the surface we're seeing a lot, of, um, a lot of pushback as far as like training is concerned, the, the need the, 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 at the individual level is rising. Like a lot of folks are starting to realize now, okay, I'm not prepared for what's out there and I need to get prepared and the and the the government or the department or the unit is not going to do it for me yeah you know I, I don't know if it's as true in our industry but uh, the thing that i observed especially from learning from your class uh was that people were trying to fix software solutions with hardware mm -hmm. right and that's something that uh you know we've talked about for years it's like you guys are constantly looking for these hardware solutions you know golfers do it <laughs> oh like i have a bad swing so i'm gonna buy this this and this and this you know, I'm not a good shooter. Well, it's got to be the gun. So let me get a gun that allows me to shoot better instead of learning the mechanics. Well, and it's not only it's not only the hardware solution to the software problem that people seek. A lot of times, um, they really are looking at a single piece of software, or, or if we're going to continue with that analogy, they're looking at a single application. So um, I'm to to create kind of what I created. I had to draw from a bunch of different disciplines. And being interdisciplinary, I think, which I'm certainly sure you understand, John. Oh, dude, uh, we that's been, what you are. Yeah, right? for, for years we've been saying we're like the Jeet Kune Do strength conditioning. So yeah. on the, on that note, on that note, you know, uh, it's not just a marksmanship problem or a gun handling problem. A lot of times, it's a social literacy problem. It's a verbal agility problem. It's a proxemics problem. And I think shooting is. The actual mechanics of shooting, that's a, that's a very narrow problem-solving modality within a much wider range of problems. And when I think about the idea of, of building an interdisciplinary tactician, we're looking for people who can solve problems with a well-placed word, a hip escape, or a trigger press, because all three of those modalities are equally powerful. I know I talked my way way more out of being shot in the face than I shot people in the face, especially being an undercover officer. So, getting people are those some of the skills that, that you're teaching. You're actually teaching people most how, to, how to navigate life without ever ever having to draw the weapon. Most assuredly, 
I do a, uh, I do a, so my flagship course is called Extreme Close Quarter Concepts, and it's described on the Shipworks website as an overview of functional handling skills at zero to five feet. There's a portion in there on the Friday, on Friday evening when we begin at 6 p.m. called Managing Unknown Contacts, which essentially is my attempt at teaching people how to not let things get shitty. Are there things that they can do in their daily life to keep things from getting to a rolling around and piss beer and broken glass horizontal and tangled gunfight. So you take them down to the bar and make them work as a bouncer. <laughs> so what we what we do is because that's where I learned that. Right, <laughs> absolutely. But but you know, uh, we we start off with a discussion of proxemics and a, and a, the idea of uh, range and time. Uh, does a little bit more or a little bit less have a significant impact on a given outcome? And I, I go through a visual to show that, that a little bit means a lot and getting people hyper-attenuated to minor changes in distance. And the, the best analogy really to give someone that probably resonates immediately with people watching this podcast would be, you know, if you think about where you're most sensitive right now to minor changes in distance, probably the best place would be to think about driving at 5 o'clock in a heavy rainstorm, you know, especially a southern or a Texas rainstorm. There's a <laughs> sheet of water. The windshield wipers can't keep up. You've got the sea of twinkling brake lights. You know, usually in conditions like that, you're very sensitive and attenuated to minor changes in distance. And what I tell people is, you know, when you're evaluating potential problems in public space, that's how I want you to be, is to be that sensitive to those minor changes in distance. So that's the first thing, is getting to understand the implications of range and time. And then we go through a process of managing, essentially, an approaching stranger in a place that would support a crime against a person more than another. And, and what people do and don't do and why they end up in the places they do. Um, average conversational distance is probably, certainly not in a post-COVID world, but average conversational distance is probably wingspan. Sure. So we look at the implications of that, and then when we have an approaching stranger who we're not looking at as far as being, are they hostile, are they benign, I'm not making a judgment call because I don't assume anyone is street smart or anyone knows what bad guys look like in a particular area of the world compared to others, we're just going to treat everybody the same. And we kind of do that with kids already. You know, what do we tell kids about approaching strangers? Stranger danger, <laughs> which is a hack for consistency. And we're not consistent as adults in how we deal with approaching strangers. So I eliminate all that and tell them we're going to be consistent in how we treat anyone regardless of how they look, what we think their intentions are, or whatever else. And we're just going to refer to them as unknowns. So I go through a strategy template for managing all these problems consisting of what you're saying, how you're moving, and what you're doing with your hands, all in an effort to keep someone a little bit further away in a way that's mostly socially acceptable. What I tell people is this, if you're doing it correctly, if I were to take this content and translate it in a law enforcement context, which I do, and it becomes managing field contacts. What I tell a police officer quite often is if you're managing a field contact correctly, a citizen should feel uncomfortable, but not enough to substantiate a complaint. Hmm. 
And it's the same thing, right? Because we're all creatures of pattern recognition and they're very subtle things that I teach people that are, in my opinion, the best tactics that are so out of pattern compared to what the average person sees that it's slightly off-putting but not enough to be offensive. Uh, we, we make the distinction between inviting someone in for conversation. The first thing you say if someone's approaching you typically is what? Something like, somebody walks up to you in the street, what do you say? To me? Stranger, yeah. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. Um, what, what do you say? Just a stranger people, walks up to you uh, in the street. Most people don't really walk over to me. Uh, <laughs> but if they people, do, what do you say? Um, What's up? No, yeah. How you doing? How you doing? How can I help you? Or, uh, Which tends to invite people into how, this average conversational distance. Yeah, how can I help And I make the distinction about, look, this is not a conversation. Why are you speaking to begin with? Probably to pause this guy, halt his encouragement. So whatever you say should support that, right? So, uh, and, and at the same time, is there anything you don't want to do? You probably don't want to say anything inappropriate or over the top that would piss this guy off. So it's a fine line. I'm trying to halt his encroachment, not create a problem. So what I, I tell people is, I, I start off with a level volumed request that's clear as to what you don't want them to do and is authentic to you. Uh, can you give me an example? So for me, something like that would be as someone's approaching, hey man, can you just hold up please? Now what sells it, now that's, that's not, again, I'm not inviting this guy in, uh, I'm not, you know, letting him in this average conversational distance. I'm asking him, okay, to hold up my face and my expression, sell it, you know, and um, if that works, that works, you know, that ask. If he honors my ask, after I do a couple more things, I may get into a conversation with him. I may let this shift from monologue to dialogue. But what I'm not going to do is allow that range to continually close as he's applying friction to me cognitively through language. So you're saying he's basically skills. engaging you to try to bring harm? Well, I don't know. That's the problem. Man, this is, I mean, it's... Uh, so uh, that's, there, there's quite a bit, there's a, that's four hours worth of work. And that's before we ever get on a range and look at where a gun should be. Uh, that's before we start looking at the, the base of and strategy for using Greco-Roman wrestling in a weapons-based environment, and then we take all the social literacy, verbal agility components, what we do on the range, um, how we build the physical tactics and techniques that we put on gear, we use uh, marking cartridges, and then we do a full-blown simulation, okay, that you're held accountable for as far as your decision-making. And everybody watches everybody else. There's no place to hide. And, you know, sometimes... So I, I work real well in uh, yes, short, short so, so Sometimes in evolution, as we call it, which is the validation exercise for the day's training, and I'll be doing a class of Bastrop here in November. Actually, I'm doing a class in Abilene, uh, a Leo class in November, followed by a class of Bastrop. So i uh, love to have you out. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Um, I, I went out to Tony's class. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was funny because uh, Tony was teaching all this stuff. Tony Blower. Yeah, yeah. Tony, yeah, Tony Blower. So he had these guys kind of set me up, and they were like, well, how would you defend this stuff? And uh, it just helps being much stronger than people Absolutely. playing 10 years <laughs> Absolutely. It kind of destroyed a bunch of Tony's paradigms. Right. And he was like, uh, outliers, don't right. worry about Don't outliers. worry. But, but it may end up, you know, the evolutions, uh, they may get called without a gun being drawn or a shot being fired. Yeah. Or they may get called with you on the ground getting your ass whipped by two dudes and shot with your own pistol. Yeah. 
never really know where it goes, which is fine because it keeps everybody engaged. It keeps me engaged. I have general pretty, I can watch it, I've been doing it for a while now, and I kind of, eh, it's probably going to go that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but so, and then we'll have, and then we'll have people that, that do inappropriate things, draw guns when they shouldn't, punch people when they shouldn't, say things that create problems. It's interesting to watch well-skilled people who shoot really well, who are athletic, who are socially awkward mm -hmm. and create problems that really shouldn't exist because their lack of social literacy. Uh, people that you know don't speak well. I'll tell a lot of guys who in the aftermath, invariably everybody asks, hey man, uh, well, what do I really need to do? Do I need to do more ranch work? Or do I need to get on the gym? Now, actually, probably you don't worry about the range. Don't worry about the gym. You should find Toastmasters. I was going to say Toastmasters. <laughs> I was like, Toastmasters. So, so here's, an, here's another one, too, that works. And this this uh, 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 patron, as I call him, a uh, student patron. Uh, patron figured this out and uh, told me about it. It's funny. Uh, speed dating. Yeah. I was going to say stand-up comedy. You don't have to fuck it. Open mic. Open That's mic. a huge deal. I mean, think about speed dating. You don't have to fuck anybody. All right. But it gives you a whole lot of contacts with strangers in a compressed time format where you have to just roll. Uh, comedy, absolutely. If you listen to the, the, the science or art, whatever you want to call it, of comedy. I love listening to Rogan talk when, when he has other comics on. And they talk about the room, the way the stage is set up, how it works. Yeah. And it's really interesting to list them out because those are all social literacy and verbal agility issues. You know, and it's interesting because it's hard to figure out. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm probably the only guy doing it in our industry to any extent. That doesn't mean I'm, I've, I've figured out the best way to teach it. Obviously, I'm practiced at it, you know, between... The, the UC work and, and teaching quite a bit, very verbal. To that point, um, Craig was the only person that I have ever seen who actually even brings into the conversation the unknowns. So from NSW, you know, the very, very first thing that we learn is that there's a shoot, a no shoot, but the most deadly that we have to deal with is the unknown, right? And in our industry, in our industry, it is black and white. It's very binary. It's either a shoot threat or a no shoot threat. And the problem that, that Craig was mentioning is that all that stuff that happens in between all of that is, is not discussed. It's not, it's not something that people are aware even exists until they're put in a situation and that awkwardness comes to the surface like a ballistic missile. And so when, when I first, um, and I don't remember when it was, but when I first observed him working in that unknown region, like right off the bat, what, whatever he was putting out, I knew that that right there was the money. Because when, when we were working, and the problem is that from, from, from my, my background in NSW, it was offensive. Whereas this is defensive, right? We can't walk around at a high ready and, you know, you know, you know muzzle striking people on a whim. It, I, even though I would like to do that, that's not something that's socially acceptable. So we are starting from a position of disadvantage. And that's why the unknowns are so incredibly dangerous because you like in, on a on a flat range we're, sh we're we're going either a shoot or we're going for possibly some you know like verbal commands that you have to give first and then wait for a follow up command that tells you to shoot or no shoot 
right? And it's very canned and orchestrated. And so unfortunately, it does not prepare the student for what they're really going to expect when they are confronted by an unknown, a stranger, somebody that they weren't expecting, an ambush basically is what we're talking about. And so like, I love the way that he packages that and I love how he delivers that because it's one of the few things, like when when we're doing our combatives program, it it largely stems in the offensive world. We're working, it's integrated into the assaults. So that's one thing. But outside of that world, it's really hard to find somebody that does that well. So you guys are teaching situational awareness. Most sure. And social, like, like just, and, I mean, and it's like interesting. So, it's social intelligence. It, it is. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, too. So that's, a, that's a great buzzword that just grates me. We talk about situational awareness. Because <laughs> I'll ask people all the time. We, we know that's important, right? Situational awareness and invariably and, and somebody nods their head. So then the next thing I ask is how do you, if, if we understand that it's important, how do we make ourselves more aware when we know we should be? Well, I always figured if you avoid, um, you're invariably going to go in places that you shouldn't. Uh, like, I'll just give you a good example. We were in Daytona Beach and, what, and uh, one of the guys that helped me build my first chopper was an outlaw biker. I uh, was a pagan and one percenter biker. Yeah. Legitimately bad dude. We went into a bar. Uh, there was a whole bunch of wannabe, you know, Daytona Bike Week real bike, uh, <laughs> fake bikers. And this guy comes over. Yuppie bikers. And, <laughs> yupping bikers, <laughs> white bikers. shoes, That's you know, so like, bad. you know, hey, I'm going to play biker for a right. weekend. And so we're sitting at the bar, and my buddy orders uh, a red wine. And this guy starts breaking his balls of course. about drinking red wine. And he looks over, and as he turns around, he has a 1% tattoo on his neck, and he's got one, a pee on his hand, which put a bag And he looks at the guy, and the guy all of a sudden realizes, oh, shit, this is actually like the 1% or the bad people that I'm right. hoping to not run into. And seeing that guy like slither away, slurk away sure. really quickly without even a look, is I was like... Uh, that's a lack of situational awareness. Like you walk into a situation like this and you think you're going to bust a guy balls and he looks at you and you realize like, oh shit, this is the bad dude. You know, this is the boogeyman of this world. And so like that was just a good indicator and we laughed our asses off. And he's like, you think that guy, you know, took off his white tennis shoes and sold his bike? I'm like, oh yeah, he totally pissed himself. For sure. But like, I mean, that's like, like knowing the audience, knowing where you are, knowing how to walk in. And like, I think that's just being aware of your surroundings. I, um, uh, we traveled to Brazil for a month. So I was in Brazil geez, years ago when I was playing the NFL. And uh, in Brazil is a situation where everywhere you walk into, you need to check to see exactly where you are and should I be here, <laughs> you know? Well, and, and it's with, again, when I ask people that question, how do you make yourself more aware when you know you need to be? I'll get anecdotes like that, or I will have people who say, uh, well, you look around more. You are, and, and it's always vague notional nebulous things versus specific advice if you think about the word aware it's not a verb there are two words in the training business that Jeff and I are in that everybody thinks are verbs and are not awareness and mindset (laughs) I will aware my way out of the situation I will mindset this dude that's 100 pounds heavier off me that's beating my ass and inside control. I'm right. Yeah, I've never heard that one. Awareness is not a verb. No. And mindset, I will mindset the fuck out of you, John. <laughs> that, those are not verbs, right? So, yeah, yeah. you know. No, it's, I mean, it, it's social media. When we start. I mean, this is social media's fault. Yeah. So when we start looking at, at awareness skills, like I'll tell people, look, 
Here's a hack on awareness. Here's the easiest way to think about it. I think think about awareness specifically as your field of vision, specifically. And throughout the day, your vision or awareness is constantly broadening and narrowing, broadening and narrowing. What we'd like to maintain is the broad or expanded field of vision or awareness compared to the narrow or constricted field of vision or awareness. So that's the first thing I'll do is kind of give them a visual of how that works, specifically related to vision, um, to talk about why we're not wired to multitask well and how that relates to the narrowing of vision and basically, you know, the, the object of the game is not to multitask in public or reduce multitasking in public, you know. And, and I'll give specific examples of seeing someone diminish from a mom that's occupied with two toddlers and she's coming out in a shopping cart with groceries and toddlers. She gets to the car, she opens the door. There's some complex, you know, rocket ship baby seat thing in there. So she's got all, her attention is split in so many different directions, right? That, you know, right now she can only focus on probably a single thing just within her immediate environment, much less to the larger, broader environment where people may be evaluating her for, you know, does she look like a tasty morsel, good victim kind of thing. So th that first part right there, giving people specific advice, avoid multitasking in public, put your phone away, don't be on your phone when you're in a transitional space in a Walmart parking lot. Keep it in your pocket, get suited up, you know, um, get in the vehicle, buckle up, focus on that, okay? Don't task your, don't, don't split your attention even further by your own actions. So, uh, and then practicing that, you know, actually physically, because that's the other thing too about awareness skills. I can sit around all day and uh, read a PowerPoint with my back to the audience while you guys go into Ascoma. Nothing's going to resonate unless sure. you actually physically train it. So that's the other thing that I've done is created physical drills so you can actually, like I'll, we do one where we're working on actually expanding your field of vision. So I teach a clock step as part of the managing a no contact strategy template where when someone's approaching you and you want to maintain distance, what I want to do is cut an arc around them. Part of the reason, for cut, there, and there are two reasons to do that. Number one, uh, if I'm aware that there's a potential problem behind me with someone that's relatively close and I return and check my six, do something like that, what kind, what kind of window of opportunity have I given for a close range guy to sure. launch on, right? Um, and the second reason we want to do that, if indeed there's a confirmed problem behind you, um, what you've done is you've narrowed the field of threat from a 180 by clock stepping around to a 45. So if it is a multiples problem, it's much more manageable. Gotcha. So anyway, when we do that, one of the things we'll do is I'll have the person move to three or nine on the clock as the person's encroaching, keeping this initial encroacher in their primary field of vision as they move what I want them doing when they catch this person in their peripheries, just pointing at that person. So it starts focusing them on actually um, developing and thinking about a broader, wider, wider field of vision. So they have to soft focus now. 
Everybody will ask, what's more important? Should I be looking at their face? Should I be looking at their hands? Should I be looking at their shoulders, their hips? You know, as far as what indicates something's getting ready to go. It's all important. You know, your posture, your hips give away, you know, weight shifts and, and, and things that are going on with the body. Hands retrieve weapons. The face gives away attention quite a bit. It's all important. So that, that's all part of, and again, we haven't even gotten to a gun yet. Well, I always think uh, a lot of the training stuff reminds me a lot of like every zombie movie I've ever seen, <laughs> where like everybody's a bad guy. You got everybody's got to get shot Correct. in the face. Whereas uh, it sounds a lot more like the Matrix, where you're like trying to move, and you never know who Agent Smith becomes, and every person's a good person or a that's, bad person. That's absolutely true. It was certainly that way. Certainly that way in in undercover work. You know, uh, things shifted quite a bit. Your your attention's always split. You know, every time I got, you know, just a minor assault. You know, it, it was always when my attention was split. You know, I'm, I'm a young undercover officer and I'm pushing a dope deal probably way too hard uh, on a target because I haven't bought all day. And I'm on loan to an agency for 90 days and there's an expectation that I make cases. I've got an informant with me. Uh, he's kind of getting hinked up by the deal. You know, uh, a woman walks out motherfucking me about selling dope here and my attention is split in all these areas between the target, you know, the baby's mama, the uh, the the guy with me, you know, the, the, the snitch that's with me, and then I'd get whacked with them all, look at all, all that shit, and never see where, where it came from, because my attention was so split. So, you know, um, figuring out what happened, number one, uh, how to take a meaningful lesson from that, number two, translate it into something that can be taught, number three, and then teaching it, number four. That's, that's all of that work and, and again I, I'm not satisfied with how I teach it I teach it okay but um, and I seem to be the only guy really teaching it as far as the firearms training industry but um, it, it's important you know I, I think in this day and age especially with the increase in CCW yeah um, the, the, the other thing about young men in particular who've been brought up in a post-Columbine world where they couldn't have a fist fight and learn how to, you know, handle things like that in school. Getting CCW or, or God forbid, coming on a job in law enforcement, you know, and uh, they don't know how to handle conflict. And we wonder why there are spikes in things that maybe are inappropriate, are inappropriate, certainly for law enforcement. I'm, I'm no law enforcement apologist. You know, I'm loyal to the profession, certainly, but did a career in it. But at the same time, I, I know I've seen some things online where uh, I've looked at that, and it, it's a shooting. I've looked at it, and I'm like, I think we would have dogpiled that, that guy back in the day. I'm not sure that would have gone to guns. So here's another interesting observation. Like, to that point, when I see, uh, and we do a class that's uh, built around concealed carry, mm -hmm. and it's... It's, I think we did that one. I did that one with you. Well, no, this is a force on force. Oh, force on force. Yeah, this is a so this basically takes your concealed carry skills, which is one of the things that Craig had mentioned earlier, which is okay, you've built a skill set, but there's a difference between developing that skill set and applying that skill set. Like applying that skill set on the range does not equal applying that skill set in the real world, sure. and there's a huge disconnect there. Sure. So in this class, students are put in a situation that is designed to force them to be uncomfortable because they're so accustomed to avoiding that. They're so accustomed to avoiding conflict. 
And it's not like I'm asking you to go up and punch the guy, but I'm asking you to be put in a situation that you may avoid normally, but then you find yourself in that situation because it's there's no other options. How do you put people into a situation in like a, a like a mock environment? So that's the hard part because yeah, like, because it, they know it's. I mean, like that's. But that works to my advantage, and I'm sure Craig does the same thing. Like when a student, like I'll have, let's just say I have two role players. All right. Well, you're, you know, let's just say I have one role player to start with. And that role player is, you know, inside the field of play. And I brief you on the scenario and I say, okay, scenario starts, go. Well, your natural instinct is to assume that that role player is a bad guy because you're in a class learning about concealed carry force on force. So you naturally, so I use that to my advantage. And I'll put them in a situation that will force them to go ahead and because I have to rewire their thinking because they naturally assume that that person is a bad guy, which means that they're naturally going to assume that a lot of other things are bad guys in the real world. And so by, by putting them in that situation to start with, and it's like a simple scenario, the first one is simple, uh, what ends up happening is they have to rewire that, that system because what we found is that the difference between training on the range and applying your skills in a, in a scenario, like whether it's a training scenario or a real scenario, are hugely different. And there's a lot of little things that you can do to help yourself before then. Like when we start to introduce multiple threats, what Craig was mentioning about you being tunnel visioned in and failing to see the guy that's moving on your flanks because you're so focused on the guy who's making contact with you. And you don't know, you don't have a way to manage that contact in a manner that allows you to still take in the situation around you and not be so fixated on that one person. Granted, if that person is fixated, it forces you to fix them because they got a gun or the knife or a pipe or whatever, that's a different story. But that's not how most of the things start. Most of the things start by drawing you in, right? Most of the de uh, you know, defensive gun uses occur at a range that is designed to be social and force you to be in that social setting. And, and you have to be able to communicate effectively, which is another thing that I feel is lacking in our industry is effective communication. Saying something doesn't really mean that it's going to be acted on. Yeah. You know, there, there's, there, like I always joke about this, the bad guy has a say. You know, so you can come up with the best plan you want, but the bad guy has a say as to how well that plan's gonna be executed, mm -hmm. right? And if he doesn't go along with your plan, then you're kind of screwed at that point. And so effective communication to me is probably one of the most un, un like it's one of the least valuable or least valued skills that I think people have. And you know, particularly as a concealed carry practitioner, that's probably one of the most important skills that you have is like you like Craig was saying, your ability to talk your way out of something. Because any day that you don't have to shoot somebody is a good day. Sure. Well, and I mean, just the legal ramifications of like, um, I come from a family of attorneys, yep. and the legal ramifications, both criminal and civil, that you would have to go through in that form of defensive, like, I wish that upon nobody. Hell it's yeah. kind of like somebody asked me about that, um, who was a Kyle Rittenhouse kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, my comment to them was like, who didn't stop that kid from going right. like the fact that he's going to be saddled with that for the rest of his life yeah. like, like like where was his parents to be like I realize that you think this is right but the potential you don't need this at 17 years old for the rest of your life and people are calling him a hero I'm like as a parent I'm fucking heartbroken that that kid put himself in that situation that yeah, don't he's... let him get there and then he had to kill somebody and fight for his life and all that I mean uh, like as a dad I'm like just get in the fucking car don't put yourself in this situation. He's got the scarlet A mm -hmm. the rest of his life. Yeah. I mean, he's marked. He's hey. a pariah. 
publicly, you know, anybody that looks at him in this age where everything lives forever in yep. social media, right? Yep. That kid, I mean, I, I can't imagine things that I did, you know, as a teenager and even as a young thank man. I can't either. Social oh, media wasn't God. around then. Being recorded, right, and, and brought back now at 53, then what about that? Yeah. When you did that back then. Yeah. So, deniability ba right back to your point on how you set things like that up and make it a, a worthwhile training experience, I think a lot of that can be handled well in uh, a pre-brief as far as setting expectations and telling someone, look, you know, uh, first of all, there's the, the scenario we're going to put you in has multiple correct answers, okay? They could be kinetic, they could be non-kinetic. There's several different ways to solve this problem. Secondly, it's a plausible problem, okay? That there are no ninjas jumping out of ceilings, there's no gotcha here. And, you know, I, I tell peer, and, and I teach a module called an experiential learning lab at a conference annually in uh, Dallas, actually, Tom, Tom gives this conference. Range Master Training Conference. It's every March, and I've been doing that for a while, but I tell people, look, the, the purpose of this is to make an attempt, and first of all, I'll go back to my law enforcement career and quote all the old guys that say, experience is the best way to learn. Experience is the absolute best way to learn. Well, after having a couple of them, what I realized, that's a terrible way to learn. Because <laughs> one, one experience with a gun yeah. Could be your yeah, last. It could be your last. So, sure. so really the best we can do in, in the, the training community is make an attempt to provide you the benefit of an experience without the consequence of actually killing another human being, killed, being killed or injured yourself, uh, going through a legal battle, being a public pariah, so on and so forth. Yeah. So that's the idea. That's the spirit. And, and most people kind of get it. And here's the other thing, too, that's not talked about, that's incredibly difficult and and I think good scenario design injects this component, and that's the moral part of it. Sure. Mm. So here's, I'll, I'll give away a scenario, all right, that I did. So I'll, and again, I'll give the students very vague instructions. Um, hey, um, and we'll sequester them where they can't see, but we'll take, um, the student's instructions will be, hey, I want you to walk in there, to this convenience store, uh, get a Gatorade, buy Gatorade, and leave. That's it. So they walk in, and there's several people, right, who are in protective gear, so they're immediately looking around. Four or five people who are all wearing protective gear for marking cartridges. And um, I'll have them get at the end of the line, there's somebody playing a clerk, and, you know, they're looking around, they're doing this, and you can see them kind of relax, and, um, I'll have a guy come in the convenience store, usually when they're kind of distracted, with a gun in hand, usually behind his thigh, pop around off, boom, everybody get on the fucking ground, you know, uh, and there are a couple things that will happen right there, so we're a moment, that guy may very cleanly draw a gun and sit that dude, okay, that rarely happens, okay, or he may not very cleanly go for a gun because he hasn't practiced that motor skill under friction, right? Especially task loading, sure. cognitive loading. It's always been on a timer against a range. So he'll paw 
in a factual way. And if my role player sees him and looks at him, he'll give him a chance to bail on it. What the fuck are you doing? And the guy stops and says, hey man, I, just, I was trying to get my... Car keys. <laughs> right. He'll, he'll let him have it. If he continues to try and draw badly, it turns into an exchange. And it's Kobe, you know, it's Kobe Ashimura. You're not going to win that. Um, so it's a, it's a moment where the student, in, in, at that moment in the scenario, has to earn their draw, either with extreme skill and violence of action or extreme guile, but just kind of fading out after he bails on the draw and saying, hey man, I was just getting my car keys, do you want a wallet, do you want to not get on the fucking ground, I don't want to be a problem. And if they sell it and they're authentic, the bad guy goes back to doing what he's doing, which is robbing the store, okay? Trying to get the register, because it's not a hit, right? It's a robber. So, they have a moment there, right? Female role player, Tiffany, <laughs> comes up and starts please why, why are you doing this this is wrong blah 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 she gets off the floor the dude's like bitch get back on the fucking floor please what are you doing starts pawing at the guy what, what's wrong with you bitch you don't get on the fucking floor I'm going to shoot you in the face so he announces intention gun guys sitting there not focused on me, focused on her. What should I do? She gets louder. I can't believe you're doing this. Gun files is, well, you know, really loud, chaotic. He screamed her, I told you one more fucking time, bitch, you better get on the goddamn ground, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, no, no, yeah, not yet. And it's real chaotic, it's very frenetic, it's loud. And all of a sudden, pow, he just pops her in the fucking face. She drops. So we have another moment in the buildup to what's getting ready to happen. Are you gonna act? Are you try and get it out? Are you try and shoot the guy? Are you try and save her life? Or are you gonna let this chick who you don't know get shot in the face and be a good witness? Which is certainly the well practical thing. Yeah, the problem though is the minute he shoots there, uh, shoots her, now I mean it's not like you can get tried for multiple murders. I mean, one murder's the same. So now he has witnesses. So I'm, I would think, personally, he shoots her. He's going to kill everybody else. It doesn't over. go that way. Really? That's not usually. I'm not Unless saying it, it has. I'm not saying it hasn't happened. Oh man. Well, but I, it usually doesn't go that if way. If I'm in that situation, like the, somebody gets shot. That's uh, like the heat. That's like the heat thing, right? You know, when Pacino's evaluating the scene, yeah. he's like, "Wow, you know, they're stone cold crew, man. They popped one. They figured." Uh, witnesses, fuck it, why not everybody else? It's that, that most people that are robbing liquor stores, yeah, don't have that. Yeah, yeah. And not unless they're hot, not unless they're they're freaked out on something. They, sure, they're you know, um, you know, totally meth out, cracked out, whatever. It might go that way. Most time it won't. Hmm. So he, after he pops her, he snatches the register and he leaves. So there's no danger. You could, and again, that can get solved a number of ways, right? He could get a good draw immediately that he doesn't flub and pops the guy right in the head. He could get a bad draw, sort of, get caught, have the ability to bail on it 
and fade out and be cool and wait for his opportunity to draw and shoot down the bat. He could not draw the gun whatsoever, get on the ground. Female starts getting involved. Then he starts some kind of surreptitious draw, trying to be cool, just to be ready, you know, shoot the guy before or after, you know. He shoot after the bad guy shoots a female role player, or he can just sit there and let her get shot and never be in danger and let the guy walk out and be a good witness. So there none of those are correct or or incorrect, right? They're all answers to the problem. But I mean, what it tells me when I construct a scenario that way is number one, who are you with a gun? Right? Number two, um, the moral component of it, which you know, there's a reason it's called a legal system, not a moral system. There are a lot of things that are legal that, you know, you'd have to live with. I mean, in Mississippi, we could probably shoot most people for vandalizing our fucking mailbox, right? But, you know, can you live with that? Yeah. That kind of thing. So, you know, looking at, and that's rarely, you can't really have a, a discussion about that, right? The best way to illustrate that is to make everybody work in front of it. So usually when I'll do that, I'll take 18 people and they're being watched by seven. So the 18 people will go through the scenario, they file back into the crowd, they can watch the next person. They can see 18 different people, you know, because I can only do so many in a certain amount of time. But everybody needs to watch. And what it does is it creates tiny, well actually not so tiny, large rooms in your head where you can just sit alone with your experience that you had. Think about what you did, but watch everybody else who may do better, who may do worse, who may do different things that you didn't think about. But it starts to look at the, the combination of, you know, the, 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 the legality of what you're doing, the tactical viability of what you're doing just because you can do and you should um, and then you know you know storytelling an example and letting guys experience that and letting everybody watch the experience you know uh, we've done things with babies before not real babies but with babies <laughs> when you throw a baby doll in there like everybody every, everybody makes example. I never let people get close to me never let people get close to me well I have a, I'll have a woman with a baby run up to you and go, my baby's choking, my baby's choking, my baby's choking. Thousand one, thousand two, thousand three. I'll send another guy out who's got an open carry, um, you know, pistol in an Uncle Mike's holster with a shirt that says, you know, God bless the NRA. And he walks up to the woman and says, I told you not to let him have fucking candy. Smack! And smacks her in the face. And all of a sudden there's a baby in the middle of all that. So it's like, uh, what did domestic baby what do here? Yeah. And those are all plausible scenarios. So, so it, you know, navigating all that, creating training, and, and the training's not, it's not sophisticated from an equipment or an environment standpoint, but certainly being able to give someone a, a, an experience like that, if, um, all you've ever done is kick doors and it's black and white or you never had any experience in your life, it, it's hard to create a situation that drives ambiguity and uncertainty. 
who who are the people that come to these courses? I mean, I'm I'm really wondering like like what's the wherewithal where somebody realizes this is a skill I don't have? I think well, and I and I need this skill. Oh, I can tell you that um, a good majority of them, at least in in the force on force classes that we do, a good majority of them are people that recognize that there is a disparity or a, a, a hole in something that they've come up. And, and the reason why I can say that is that when we're done with the scenario, I ask the student, justify your actions. It's the first thing that I'll ask them to do because I want to hear their why. What was going on in their head that led to the outcome? Because a lot of times, you know, like we, we, we ask them to define the legal means for using deadly force. How do, you, what, how do you justify your use of deadly force? You have to have components there. And if those components are not present, well, now you're in a legal bind. And then that leads us to justifying your actions. Why did you do that? Did you have the moral sense? Were you, were, did you feel like that was more morally on your side or amorally on your side? You know, kind of get into that. And when we get into the moral question, what I find a lot of people, a lot of people are, are finding a void in themselves. And I think this kind of ties into one of the reasons why we are very excited about this, this conference that we have coming up, yeah. because that conference focuses a lot about trying to like hammer out some of the details about masculinity and what it means, what we, how we perceive that, our opinions on that, and then through the interaction of folks like yourself, how does that kind of roll into this whole thing? Well, let's transition into that. Um, uh, you hit me up, geez. Yeah. Was that almost a year ago? Well, like thanks, yeah, it was like a year to, ago. Thanks to COVID. Well, yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks China. Right. Uh, you hit me up about a year ago about a conference that you and uh, Craig and I think it was mainly you guys yep. uh, were, were doing, but you invited other kind of SMEs mm -hmm. uh, to get involved called the 12 Labors. Yep. And uh, it, I mean, it looked like an amazing format. I remember when you were like, yeah, we're going to do it the first week of December. I'm like, we've done all events the first week of December, haven't we, Tex? And a few, a number. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, post, you know, Thanksgiving, and I think I, I threw you some of like the uh, roadblocks you might encounter. Yeah. Um, but it was a, a pretty fascinating idea in terms of like bringing some, you know, varied SMEs in and letting people have access to these individuals to teach everything from, you know, what Craig's talking about with, uh, you know, I don't even know what now, now I don't even know what to call it. Social literacy. Social. <laughs> Man, isn't that strange that, uh, uh, that people have become so socially illiterate or what we used to call just a little bit of street smarts, yeah. you know, like, um, like it, it was, uh, when I was in college, we were, uh, I was playing uh, uh, at Berkeley, but we were super broke. And so one of the jobs I did was I worked security for illegal raves in San Francisco. And <laughs> the guys that I worked with Absolutely. were uh, like legitimate, not good guys. Right. Um, yeah. One guy used to collect money for the, for the mob and uh, another dude was like, uh, you know, just interesting characters. Right. And what was amazing was their, what I like to call uh, sixth sense for fucking trouble right. was unbelievable to the point where they could stand there and, and like uh, see a line of people waiting to get in and know exactly who the troublemakers were and go over there and just, you know, be like, you're not welcome here tonight. Right. And so these guys, they'd be like, Hey, watch this guy, let him in. And invariably that dude would be the troublemaker. And they like how they knew how to circle people up. Yep. Like it was just, it was amazing. Yeah. And so hanging out with those guys, they were just, and I asked the one guy one time, I was like, you know, like, how do you figure this out? He goes, because I'm a bad person. Mm. I'm not a good guy. And so I look people, I look for people that exude qualities that are familiar to me. Right. And it's really easy for me to see them. It's pattern recognition. Yeah. Right. Same exact thing. Yeah. yeah. Same I, exact thing. I got a detective pal in Washington, D.C., D.C. Metro. 
So he gets to investigate uh, some perps and then gets to hunt them down. So he came down to visit in Austin. We're at 6th Street, like pre-COVID, but we're hanging out over a balcony bar. And I'm just like, what's going through your head, man? Because you got these mounty horses that are just patrolling, walking yeah. the streets. It's, it's bars. It's late. And there was a shooting there recently. But he's just, all right, eyeing these kids. And you see kids playing, like, dice games and are coming up to, like, people and trying to pull them into their yeah. thing. And then when the cops approach, bag is zipped and they're walking away. And so he just noted 12 plus different scenarios of all these different things where he's just, all right, well, that's immediately where my eyes went and all these different things. And it's just how is mind thought. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just like in football. um, You know, we we would watch so much film that all of a sudden they get into like one, you know, formation and the defense sets up this line, in this case cheating here. And you know the three blitzes that they bring from that. And you just see it with pattern recognition to the point where all of a sudden you're like, you know, like that's where the guy's coming from and then we all react. So I think it's just opportunity, you know, to see these scenarios. And I think what you're doing is you're creating uh, scenarios for people in an environment that they will never, like, Hopefully they never get into, but they don't have access to. It's true because one of the things, like, um, like I've had, I'm, I'm sure Craig has had this as well. I've had several students that have been involved in deadly, you know, deadly force defensive gun use, and they've they've circled back with me and talked a little bit about their experience and some of the patterns that I've pulled away. I think so far up to this point, I've had a little bit over a dozen. Wow. Yeah, and um, there's there's some common patterns that emerge from this and some of the stuff we've already talked about how they weren't paying attention how they were distracted which is the number one thing that I tell people is avoid distractions now if you can do that which is what Craig was mentioning you're a hell of a lot better off than a lot of other people uh, and 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 the, but the one thing that really kind of floored me to hear this from probably about three or four people that said that was that they were not prepared they felt that they were not like mentally prepared for the violence that they were about ready that they that they experienced, and that they felt it was necessary to put themselves in situations to help familiarize themselves with violence, and that's where I think a lot of the force on force is valuable because a lot of times in this day and age we're seeing people who are not accustomed to violence. They grew up without it almost in their household, or not in like not like growing up in a violent household, but growing up roughhousing with kids in your neighborhood, getting in scraps at school, playing contact sports, sure. things like that that help condition you to violence and what that means. And it's not like you have to be a violent person to be violent. That's the other thing. Well, uh, but that's an interesting one. I, um, so I started martial arts when I was six. And then at about age 10, I thought kicking was stupid. Yep. And so I got into boxing. Right. And I wanted to be a fighter. And uh, I remember the first like a legitimate kind of like uh, you know I grew up with two older brothers and we fought all the time and our neighbors we used to like set up little rings with our neighbors and fucking beat the shit out of each other as kids but I remember the first time I think I was in 6th grade and an 8th grade kid like legitimately tried to fight me and it was as I saw this going down I was like oh shit like this is like we've been doing this for years like this is the first time in like somebody I don't know what does that look like yeah and I just remember as this thing went the kids started crying yeah, and like he got really emotional and crying and I'm sitting there and he like pushed me and I was wearing my backpack and I remember thinking like if I drop my backpack is that going to give him uh, like is that cheating or is that going to give him a clue <laughs> so I, I literally just hit him square in the face and right. knocked him down And, he, and I, but I remember seeing him cry 
on the ground, but he was crying before. And I just remember like he was either giving himself courage or he'd never been in this situation. Whereas I've been punched in the face a million times. Absolutely. Uh, you know, drowned by my brothers almost to the point of drowning in the pool. Like so much stress inoculation <laughs> yep. at a young age. Right. That like it just, you that know, and, right there. and after you fight in the, you know, in the dojo and you fight like in boxing and whatnot, it just didn't seem like it wasn't an emotional thing. But I just remember I was so shocked to see this kid crying. Uh, like before, like he was, you could see him welling up in the tears and getting this courage. And then when he got hit, he started crying on the ground. Right. And it just was, uh, to this day, it's by far one of the most memorable fights I've ever been in. Yeah. Just because I was so shocked. Like, why is this kid crying first? Like, it's not like I heard him beforehand. Then after he got punched in the nose, you know, his face swole up. But it was such a weird one. And I just remember, like, and I can see it. And I've seen it multiple times. People start to get in that fight. You could see them start welling up with emotion, almost to the point of crying. And I'm like, if that's you, you have not been in enough fights. And, and the other thing, too, is, you know, you had confidence and confidence. Confidence gives you confidence, right? That kid that had neither. He was probably not confident, and he was certainly not confident. Then so why come pick a fight? Well, like that's that's a and, weird one for me. That, that is a weird one, right? Yeah. But how often does that happen even now where, you know, I had a kid here in Austin, a taco truck, really make a selection error recently. On you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, very, you know, um, well, I'll tell the story. Yeah, well, so, please do. Might this, as well. This sounds like a great story. <laughs> All right, I'll tell the story. So, uh, Sunday morning, about her, see the Lord, my girlfriend, and um, I'm looking for breakfast tacos, right? Some breakfast tacos. And, um, where, where, what, uh, what part of town are you downtown? Uh, down by the airport. That's okay. She's running a house right there before we actually buy one here later this year. But, um, cause I'm going to move out here. Nice. So anyway, <clears throat> I want, I want these tacos. So I, I, and this is before the mask mandate was lifted. Hmm. Right. So I get out there at this, uh, park and there's no place. So none of the trucks are open except this one with the breakfast tacos and no one's there. Slip my mask up. Gore. There's a group of picnic tables that are probably eight yards, a good distance away from the taco truck. Order my tacos, park up on the breakfast table, well, park up on the picnic table and start messing around my mouth. Well, I hear him before I see him, right? Bro, dude, and I like, and I said, adulting. Is so he's doing every hipster thing, turning nouns into verbs, and he's and he's talking on the speakerphone, holding the oh, phone. I fucking cannot stand that. Right. So I hear him before I see him. And he's coming probably at about my eleven o'clock towards the taco truck. I'm offset at about five suits and just sitting on the park bench or a picnic table. And I'm like, my own business. And I see him. <clears throat> hey, so anyway, I was like, uh, I told her, and he looks over at me, and he does one of these. Yeah, so anyway, bro. Oh. And uh, I look over at my phone. I look over at him, I'm like. <laughs> go back to my phone. I was not as polite when that happened to go me. Back, go back to my phone. Well, he, he kind of turkey necks on me, does one of these. Hey, hey, bro, hold on just a second. Hey, sir, 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 sir. 
Yeah. <laughs> I can already see it. Sir, it's just, it, it's just a matter of being polite. Oh. I said, if it was about being polite, young man, you probably would not have your phone on speaker right now. Turkey neck's a little harder, steps forward, and in his very unathletic way, kind of sets his posture, which looks kind of like Chris Catan playing Mango on the mm -hmm. Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's off. It's off-putting. You know, kind of... Well, yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, when you said mango, right. I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, you're like mango. Yeah. But he takes a step closer and he says, hey, sir, sir, sir. Yes. <laughs> Clearly, I It's really an issue of safety and it's about being safe. So I hopped off the park bench, put my phone in my pocket. And I said, gave him kind of a quarter knife hand and said, hey, dude. <laughs> If it was about being safe, you probably wouldn't walk up to perfect strangers and start fucking with them now, would you? And he thought about it for a second. Bro, gets what just happened and, and runs off and doesn't get his tacos. And I'm like... I would have gone over and been like, can I get his tacos? <laughs> yeah. I'll pick his up. But too. he... That's he. He initiated. So first of all, he he felt okay with trying to address me that way, you know, um, and didn't go his way. And he tried to address it a little bit more. And you know, he's he's initiating conflict with me, sure. right? Regardless of whether he thinks he's right or he thinks I'm wrong or he thinks he has some kind of moral imperative, and uh, I'm just not going to go along with it. Sure, and I'm going to address his behavior point by point. And, um, you know, he, when it hit that point where it's like, okay, he's, he's, he's posturing up a little bit, right? Okay. All right. That's fine. And, uh, I hopped off and he thought about it for a second and, and just kind of, you know, his knees came together, you know, and, and, you know, kind of did like a Napoleon Dynamite locked elbow <laughs> thing, you know, talking the whole time, very <sighs> awkward. But it's like, dude, why, why would you do it? Got my tacos and went back, you know, laughed about it, you know. But why, why would you start some shit like that, um, you know? Yeah, so that's a weird one. And not have the ability to follow the... Well, and, and it's because it, I think uh, he probably thinks most people are like him. Right. And that, uh, you know, it's well, it, like maybe like, the, you know, like that guy's probably... moral high ground is how he looked at it. <sighs> Yeah. So when you see, so when you see think, think about that okay think about these people who who have never experienced any immediate consequences for for anything right um, they've been helicopter parented they've never been punched in the face they've never played contact sports they don't you know most of their interaction as far as so, you know a lot of their interaction is through social media right so if they don't like something they unfriend you. You know, that's how they resolve conflict. Now we have people like that. And, and I think when we see stuff like that, along with rising, I don't know if this is true or not. Some people would argue that it was rising um, levels of um, autism spectrum disorder with a higher percentage of people who are getting CCW. Well, yeah, there, there's all kinds of weird things going on and weird things coming together. But if you think about the intersection yeah. of all this shit, 
you know yeah it's 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 kind of a weird place and do people need you know alternative problem solving and maybe even if we go back further modalities to give people confidence and competence outside of violent you know fighting related stuff you know a big part of 12 labors is looking at all the legacy dad knowledge mm -hmm. that historically was passed from young man to young man or young or for old man to not so old man to young man right uh, things like um that's one of the reasons that the 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 the, the menswear thing is such a big part of that. You know, teaching guys how to dress better, um, learning how a jacket is supposed to fit. Why, if you get a jacket, the first thing you shouldn't do is start doing side strut hops your jacket and say, it doesn't fucking fit. Well, a gentleman takes jacket off, right? Huh. Before you do that shit. It's not athletic wear. It's designed to make you look sexy, have a great V, right? And accentuate that stuff and, and um, you know, Food, uh, classic cocktails. Um, my better half, Lauren, is doing a class on uh, polarity, what makes men attractive to women and what makes women attractive to men. Uh, she draws on a, a whole bunch of different other people, uh, David Data, Brene Brown, uh, Esther Perel, and she hacks that stuff real well for dudes and makes it easily digestible. Got a buddy of mine who's a... Uh, Bud's graduate, uh, runs a, a small boutique hedge fund, uh, who has a doctorate in decision science from Oxford University, UK, which is an interesting interdisciplinary field that covers everything from you know evolutionary psychology to game theory. But he's doing uh, some, he's doing a couple of different presentations, one's mm -hmm. on finance. So, so seeing where all this stuff intersects along with and, and they're all, I think, I think they're all hacks for improving competence and confidence, right? Whether it's dressing better, feeling better about yourself, speaking better, making more money, um, fighting better, not being concerned about conflict. Now, that's really what 12 Labors represents, and that's the reason that we kind of looked at the 12 Labors of Hercules as a way to bring all this stuff together. Because if you look at the 12 labors in, in the mythology, anything you'd want to do well as a man could probably fall under one, one of those. those 12. Yeah, one of those 12. And that's the idea is that we're taking all these different elements of, you know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, uh, firearms, MMA, fitness, nutrition, uh, dressing better, uh, cocktails, food, relationship about all this stuff and just kind of seeing where it intersects and seeing, you know, bring everything you'd want to do well. It's really, if, if honestly, that there's a, there's certainly an element of the bond ethos to it or the bond mythos, I should say. I mean, think about bond, what makes bond so attractive and enduring. Oh, you mean James Bond? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, James Bond. Well, of course. I mean, said, bond. James Bond. Yeah, yes. no, well, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> vodka martini straight up, you know, shaken, not right. stirred. I mean, right. two olives, uh, Aston Martin, you know, uh, Giorgio Armani suits. I mean, uh, you what know. makes all that stuff so interesting, right? Yeah. And how it, yeah, plus, you know, Bond's very, and that was one of the things about the Daniel Craig character, you know, when Daniel Craig kind of took the franchise over, 
he made Bond physical and menacing. Oh, yeah. I love that yeah. part. Yeah. Right. A, a, a little and, darker. And Bond has not sure. been menacing since Connery. Yeah. You know, back in the sixties was slapping around women who got excited about it. Well, you know? yeah, so. no, I, I'm with you. I, I always liked the Daniel Craig. I mean, it, it, yeah. it became kind of a comic bookish with like Piers Brosnan oh, and then even uh, Roger Dalton Moore was. and Timothy Dalton. Oh. Like it wasn't until we got, you know, it kind of reminds me of like the original kind of those Tim Burton Batmans. Yep. And uh-huh. then all of a sudden gets to the Dark Knights kind of went the Roger Craig deal fell. A- a- absolutely. And that's, well, I mean, if you think about when they brought it back with Casino Royale, how did Bond get his double O status? You know, yeah, he that was great. beat a guy to death yeah. in a bathroom and drowns him. You know, after after well, a fight, well, so he brought he brought all that physicality and menace back to the character, which you know previously had been occupied by actors that didn't project that, and they sure. kind of you know had that. British they had the debonair kind of side down, but they, they lacked. I'm they photographed. They photographed well. I'm they still, did. I'm still phys- haunted physical. by the uh, by the scene when they put him in the chair uh, and his balls fell, and then the guy took the oh, like the, the like the rope, fist. the, yeah, the monkey fist, fist. and basically, comes yeah, up. and just yeah, fucking yeah. just basically yeah. fucking smashes right. his balls to oblivion. Awesome. And I remember thinking, like, did they really need that part in that A movie? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I just remember at that point being like. Who decided that they needed this part in the movie? I, Daniel Craig. I yeah. thought it was the probably one of the quintessential moments in that film because it personified his character as far as even when the chips are down, he's still manipulating somebody to do something for him. Yeah, just a little bit to the left. Now I can say you scratched my balls. You know, right. it's like, yeah, yeah. fuck. Yeah. I, you know, I, and like, would I want to endure that pain? No. Probably not. No, 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 no. That was but, fucking unbelievable. But it was fucking badass. That, that yeah, to me, in the, in the, like, there was so much that was good in that movie. Was uh, the Casino Royale one the where the guy uh, uh, bleeds no. the blood? No. Yeah. Yeah, or yeah. like, like he's oh, crying. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and Mads, that's Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah. And you know, yeah, so the guy poisons him, yeah. uh, and he goes out to the car and fucking basically puts it in his heart, <laughs> like that whole right. thing, and then comes back in and plays. And plays, that yeah. Was so sad. You know, that's, that's one thing. I, I, I had, like, I wanted to ask you about this, but, you know, I had mixed feelings about it but I think the um, the art of poker and his I mean my dad when I was young would have poker night mm-hmm. and I remember going out in the garage and all the guys were out there smoking and playing and drinking and it was it was the it was guy time for my dad he would go out there I mean he did a lot of other guy things but that was one of the things and I can remember you know, like one of the regrets that I had was he never really taught me how to play poker. I had to kind of learn that on my own, and I think he did that on purpose because, you know, for him it was it wasn't a, it wasn't an issue, but I don't think he wanted that for me. But I I find the I find the like playing at a table with other people. I mean, it's the best thing since the only other thing that could come close to it is being on the mats, right? Because you you are you are having to play. Oh, yeah. Against another opponent. Yeah, that's the difference between blackjack and poker. Blackjack, yeah. you play the cards. Poker, you, you play, play the name. Exactly. Did you ever see Rounders? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. That's, that's a, great a great movie. movie. But that's that's you know, a great. But, oh, yeah. but the, especially as far as when he when when you see him going to the judge's poker table, you know, <laughs> and, and he reads everybody and reads their cards exactly, just based on things that he's picking up as far as body language, facial expressions, how everything rolls. Um, There's so yeah. much to it, and and that, and that was one of the things that you know I think maybe uh, our second year we can consider that. But right. I like the idea of it from a simple point of the having to 
having to be because part of that is also paying attention right body language being able to read being able to deceive or hide your own tells correct things like that i think are valuable to this day because you know that allows you to interact in the real world right. for your benefit or to prevent somebody from taking advantage most, of it. most assured so i was kind of disappointed that we didn't add it to this year i think we had enough on our plate i'm not I'm, I'm, when i say i'm disappointed i'm not disappointed that we did do it i'm disappointed that i didn't think of it sooner one of the uh one of the people that lauren uh does that she studies a lot uh are the guidelines and they are relationship people right mm-hmm. they're marriage counselors but the Gottmans have uh they can with a 95 percent accuracy watch a video of a couple and watch i think it's a three minute clip and ascertain whether they're going to be together in the next 18 months it's wow. like 95 percent accurate that's 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 impressive and based on based on <laughs> is that is that like a self fulfilling process? Yeah, based I don't know if I want to know that. You're like, uh, should we send it now? Yeah, proxemics and body language and the things they do or don't say to each other. You know, uh, they they have like a four horsemen of the apocalypse as uh. far as and, and contempt to be as being one of the one of the biggest ones, right? Yeah. But but stuff like that. Respect. I, I, respect. Yeah, respect <laughs> is number one. Absolutely. I remember my dad telling me if you want to be married, my dad was married. To my mom, uh, he passed away what two years ago. So they were married oh, fifty-two God, years. Yeah, but I think we got him somewhere straight, yeah, right straight up top here. Yeah, yeah. The uh, we had him on the podcast, but I remember asking him, "I'm like, how do you stay married for fifty-two years?" And he was like, "Jokes go stale. Yep. Uh, looks fade. Uh, thing, you know, interest people grow." He's like, "As long as you have a mutual respect and you continue to respect that person." And uh, my dad was a pricing attorney for fifty-five years, and uh, in early in his career, he did some. Uh, uh, divorces and some family law and he said actually the murder one felony stuff was a lot cleaner than <laughs> dealing with divorces and family law yep. he's like honestly like uh, if you do divorces you gotta really be a sick fucking guy but um, he was saying that in all the things he observed and the people that he, that he was around the minute that all of a sudden the couple stopped respecting each other that was the end of it. Contempt. Yeah. And he goes, yeah. and now all of a sudden I don't respect you. I think you're a piece of shit. I think you're a bad person. And he goes, as long as you can respect your significant other and you don't let like, you know, like I'm sure you've been around people where all of a sudden they say something to their wife or the wife says something to the husband and you're like, did he just call her a fucking cunt? Yeah. You know, some, some like, because right. I've, I've heard that. And all of a sudden I'm like this and I'm like, I, if somebody talked to me like that, I would never fucking go back. And more importantly... Uh, if I spoke to you like that, I would hope you would have the respect and the wherewithal to, to, yeah, just to get the fuck away from me. Or so, call my, you out. well, just just like um, I always thought, a relationship was a lot like a plate, right? Like it's a beautiful piece of china. The minute you shatter it, you can put, you can glue it back together. Those but fissures are still but, there. Yeah, there you still see it, yeah. and it never goes back. So my big thing is like, let's not break the plate. Just Don't ever talk to me like. Uh, I'll never speak to you that way. As long as right. we have mutual respect, we can stay married a long time. And I've been married 10 years as of a few days ago. There we go. Um, but yeah, respect is the biggest one. Um, going back to that taco truck story, and this is a really interesting one. Um, I'm real big on like, like I don't go seeking conflict. <laughs> like I'm not going to go out of my way to fuck with somebody. Right. Uh, just because one, I don't want to waste the time. Two, I don't know where this goes. And there's never a, a point where that's a good fucking idea. Right. He doesn't know who you are. He doesn't know any of this stuff. And like that kind of social justice warrior, that guy thought that he's somehow doing something and exercising some imaginary right that he's been granted. 
uh, just goes to show that that person's never been in any conflict. Exactly. And so I'm, I'm amazed so, with that yeah. one. You know, if like if I get in, like if I'm at a bar and some guy's a fucking asshole, for the most part, I'll just leave. Right. Because I know that the problem that's going to ensue for me doing what I would like to do is probably going to involve, you know, the police and some form of litigation and me having to write a check for yep. hard-earned money that I fucking have earned and I don't like to give to people. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, too, to me, because I'm... I can't remember the last time someone tried to start a problem. I mean, I'm not a physical, five, seven, 175 pounds. I'm not a physically imposing person, you know, but I don't get, nobody, people don't start shit with me, you know? So it was really interesting too, how off that guy was and, and how entire, how, how righteous he felt. You could, you could just feel the self-righteousness coming. So I would say this, during the last 16 months, that behavior has intensified. Yeah, it has. And it's intensified because of the social justice idea that I'm, I'm doing this for the greater good and I have justice on my side and I will prevail. And the problem is what, what my, because I got confronted several times over the last 16 months. Wow. And, um, my, you know, but I always have the idea that, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to draw a line and I'm not going to cross that line, but I'm also going to stand up to what I believe is right, which is, I don't think you are righteous in your attack on me for choosing to, to, to not wear a mask because I don't think it's in my best interest. That's my choice. You don't like it. That's your choice, but back the fuck off. Yeah. And so I would make that clear. And on two occasions, I'd have to remove myself from the scene, from the situation, which is not easy. It's a lot harder than you think because you feel like you were right in your, like, I am, I, this is my choice. I shouldn't have to leave this place. I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to defend my actions. I shouldn't have to do all of this. Yeah. But in today's world, that's where we have gone. And the problem is that we've opened Pandora's box with this pandemic because there's a lot of these fuckers that are out there now that all of a sudden they're going to find the very next thing to latch onto and it's going to be all about that so it's even more important these days that people have a better understanding of what violence looks like how to manage violence how to, how to and really what we're talking about is knowing themselves this is the reason why i'm so excited about the 12 labors is because you probably like obviously you're going to have four or five of these traits dialed in but there's going to be five or six that you don't Right? And I'm pretty good at ordering drinks. <laughs> I have seen you. Order uh, yeah, I, I I know exactly what drink I'm gonna I, have. I, I understand that yeah. you have a high you have a high level yeah. of, of oh, skill I've, at that. I've seen it firsthand. We were but, taught very young. My dad was uh, always you know as a lawyer, like a defense attorney. You know, cars, clothes. You know, ordering like there was a lot of things that go into it because yeah. people assess you. Like, sure. are you are you the county sheriff or are you the gunfighter? Yeah. Right. And uh, that analogy they would use, my brother still uses it, like, hey, when uh, in every Western you've ever been to, when the troubles, you know, ensue to the town, who do they do? They go to the gunfighter yeah. and they bring him in to win. Yeah. So same with attorneys. You see the guy pull up in the nice Porsche. He's got like the, uh, you know, metal to me case. He walks in. He's wearing, you know, a thousand dollar suit. He's got a gold Rolex, nice cufflinks. That's your gunfighter, the dude that comes in with the tweed coat that's driving the Celica. That's your fucking county <laughs> yeah, sheriff, and he gets killed early. Yeah, he, he so, always does. Or, so he like, just, or he just hides in the closet. Yeah, yeah. And, right. and so, like, you know, my brother, same thing. He's like, you got to hire a gunfighter. Right. And he goes, but you know who those guys are in the movies. Just like when you walk into a courtroom or you walk in, you know who people are. It's so true. And that's what I'm, I'm, I'm really, 
I'm, I'm excited about that because I think that there's enough people that are, you know, they're fed up with that environment, but there's also enough people that are interested in what can I do to better myself as a person? And in this case, as a man, what can I do to improve myself? Like I've got like one of the hard things that we have as men is accepting the weakness, right? Especially as a type A personality, we don't like to accept that weakness. It's probably been one of the best gifts that I could have ever had, which is to acknowledge failure and look at failure as a lesson not as a, as a failure, you know, there's, there's wins and losses, but for me nowadays, it's wins and learns. What did I, what did I learn from this failure? And so I look at myself, I try to do a self-assessment. Where am I strong? Where am I strong? Where, where do I not need to spend time? I don't need to spend time at what I'm good at because that's just stroking my ego. What I need to spend time in is what I'm not good at, right? Where do I need help there to help bring my game up to a level that I'm happy with? And that's what I think this conference is really going to help do is that it's going to bring people with all different types of backgrounds and all different types of experiences, but they're probably not going to have, they're not going to have a full complement of maximum performance at all of these, but they're going to be able to come to one event and be able to, Hey, you know what? I didn't know that about that. Or, you know, the, I can't wait for the finance. The finance is one of, one of the ones I'm really looking forward to because that's definitely an area that I, you know, that I struggle with at times. So, you know, things like that are what I feel are going to be valuable and people are going to start to appreciate the fact that, you know what, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, work in pro, I'm a work in progress. Like I, I, I'm continually bettering myself even to this day, even as, a, as an instructor, I, like Craig said earlier, I'm not happy with my product. I'm not, I'm not fully complacent in the fact that I have achieved perfection. I'm going to continue to strive to improve. And this is what this conference is all about. It's about continuing to strive to improve, to be the better, better self-image. I think, you know, one of my favorites, uh, favorite quotes from a poem is beautify your life. And that's how I look at everything that I do. I, I look to beautify whatever it is. Because when I, when, you know, when you watch an artist and you watch them perform whatever their skill is, it looks beautiful. Whether it's a, whether it's a, a ballet dancer or whether it's an acrobat or whether it's a gunfighter. It, you know, in my eyes, when I watch somebody that's skilled, that, that is beauty. That's how I interpret beauty. And that's my purpose, to beautify my life. And we want, we want 12 laborers as much to be <clears throat> a place where you can have as uncomfortable of a conversation as you want. <laughs> and I don't care what it's about. I don't care whether it's the nerdy guy, you know, who is good at finance, that's super uncomfortable with any form of physicality and we're going to take that guy and we're going to put him in a car and teach him how to fight in a car right he's going to get way outside of his comfort zone sure or we take you know the athlete who's a former soft guy and we have him discussing his weaknesses a greater part of that could be expressed as Brene Brown would put it, vulnerability and yeah. shame. Yeah. And watch that guy get real uncomfortable about some things that probably resonate. You know, uh, shame lives in the dark, to quote her. So uh, it, it's 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 going to be a pretty. And I, I want to have if, if people want to talk about infidelity, they can talk about infidelity. If people want to talk about psychedelics, they can talk about psychedelics. I don't give a fuck. But it's a place where we can have a lot of interesting conversations, bring a lot of interesting people together, mainly men. It's not exclusive to women. 
and want women there, okay? But we're not gearing it towards women being better women. We, we're gearing it towards men being better men now. So um, I want 12 laborers to be all of that, and I have no idea how it's going to go. Who, who's, no uh, who's the demographic? Like, like, how are you? Everybody. everybody. Well, it, I mean, yeah, everybody, but it, everybody. the fitness community. Well, it's kind of hard if you say everybody. It really, I know, it really is. Uh, but it's primarily, I think we primarily marketed to, because that's where we came from. The uh, the the self defense, tactical martial arts training community. And, and starting to hopefully broaden to the greater fitness community. Yeah. It's hopefully going to get traction in different places. And we just want all this stuff coming together under one roof. And I, I think it has legs. I've been thinking about this for a long time. You know, um, we want somebody to be able to, you know, sit at your feet, John, and get all of your legacy knowledge and what you do. We want somebody to be able to. Good thing we have 500 podcasts. Right. Me droning that's, out that's, about that's all this. That's a lot. We want, right. <laughs> we, want, we want all these. We want all these people coming together with all these. You know, all these shared interests and uh, and and for to be okay. I mean, how many times do you go go to a place where you can't have a conversation about something? Right. You know, or, or God forbid, you know, like if you're in New York State and you're a gun owner, you know, it's like, hey, man, uh, do you, uh, what kind of guns do you have? And the first thing you do is this. <laughs> so I've got a, a Glock 43, and mm. I just got permission to buy a Glock 19, and it's on my permit. And, you know, can't even, can't even talk about guns. It's in places like Whereas in Texas, there's Whereas an Texas, entire culture uh, about what people right. just carry in their trucks. And Austin, and Austin is an interesting place, yeah. right? Because what is it? One million people have come to the city of Austin over the past 15 years, yeah. I believe. Yeah, there's about. Uh, is there over a million people in Austin? I yeah, we're um, million plus. top 10. So Houston, San Antonio, and Austin, and Dallas. Yeah. So four of the top 10 cities in the United States population. Oh. But I want to say the population of Austin over the past 15 years yeah, easily, easily. has increased by a million people in the greater area. And, and these people are coming from every, everybody's coming here. I see the everybody's different license plates coming. every single day. Oh, yeah. You know, so now all of a sudden, you know, we have people that are transplanted here and gun and barbecue culture. And they're trying to navigate the space and it's like, all right. But, um, you know, there's, there's another point to this, too, because during this during this pandemic, one of the things that I witnessed, uh, particularly in the gun gun sphere, was how many people were um, were interested in learning more because where they came from, it was yeah. declined to them. It or, was, or taboo. It, it was taboo. Yeah. I have I've had no shit. I've had people tell me that. They cannot be seen at a range. Like, please don't post anything right. on social media. I have to. Because if my workmates find out, I I lose my job, I'll lose my advancement, I'll lose my promotion, I'll mm. lose all this. You know, I mean, it's that bad. It really is. I hope that it's changing. And what I'm hoping for is that, uh, you know, like, like we can... We're, this is open to like when you ask about the demographics. Who is I mean, it? is it like eighteen? I mean, it's probably not eighteen year old kids. Well, it's probably twenty four to. Actually, we'd want them to. Yeah. We have you know, get them, sons. get them early. We yeah. have some father sons that are coming out. I know that. Um, get them early. My Absolutely. son's going to be out there. Andrew will be out there because I want him to gain this exposure from not just me, my my side, but all the other folks that we have coming out here. 
Um, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more with, with Craig on the sense that I believe that really the, the best demographic that we could have would be the younger de- de- sure. de- demographic, like 18 to 24 is perfect. You know, and I'm thrilled to see the father sons coming out because that's a great rite of passage for them. And that's the other thing too. Like, like we've lost, we've lost what a rite of passage was for us. You know, as as a male culture in this current time period. Like growing up, I had a rite of passage. Everybody, everybody that I knew around me had some sort of rite of passage that helped them to enter into manhood. Do you uh, do you remember your rite of passage? Yeah, it was shooting somebody in the face. That's a good one. I I re, like I I remember what my welcome to the NFL moment was. What was that? Uh, we were playing. It was my second year. Uh, we were playing the San Diego Chargers uh, at home, and all of a sudden we were had the, I was playing left guard. The ball was going this way, and I see Junior Sale walk out on the edge, Ooh. and all of a sudden the quarterback audible to a playback this way. And I knew that I had him. Uh. So I took off running as fast as I could this way. And he ran all the way over the top and made the ball and tackled the ball carrier on the other side of the field. Made <laughs> me look made bad. me look stupid and then patted me on the butt and said, Good job, keep trying. <laughs> and then uh, and and then later on he like gave me he like came over and he was like, Yeah, I know you're like basically I know you're a young guy, welcome to the NFL kind of bullshit. Right. Two years later I'm at the Pro Bowl. And he sees me, and he's like, you're with me. And he proceeded to fucking literally drink me under the table every single night I was there. And I remember us coming home one night, uh, like 3 or 4 in the morning. Uh, I laid down for a little bit. At dawn, I went out, and I was going to throw up (laughs) off of the balcony. And I looked out, and he was running on the beach. And he drank more drinks than I had. Now, at the time, I thought he was like Superman, not realizing that he couldn't sleep because of the concussions and ended up killing himself. So that was like... Super. I mean, that was hugely impactful for me when he ended up killing himself, because like he was my welcome to the NFL moment when I realized that this is, uh, you know, uh, like the land of fucking jolly green giants and genetic freaks. Yeah, yeah. And no matter how hard you try, there is some dude out there who is so gifted beyond anything else that he will make the best people in the world look stupid. Yeah. I and that, that, yeah, right. that was my, I was 22 or 23 years old. When I was stationed there in San Diego, he was very actively involved with, with the military and in particular in NSW. So we would see him come out to a lot of the charities. And I remember the first time I went out as, uh, you know, as a representative of the command and, uh, you know, he was there. I was just like floored by him. I mean, he was awesome. I mean, he, first of all, was so gracious. Oh, and so, so charismatic. Fucking gracious. I mean, yeah. with his time. He made he made so much effort to be there and to yeah. help and, and to just bring awareness to everything. So yeah, when he when he when he passed away, man, that was a hard loss. But it was so your rite of passage was fucking drilling some guy in the face. Well, oh, that's a hell of a rite of passage. <laughs> Not necessarily in the face. That was what I wanted, but it was. Did it go down the way you thought you were? Like, wow, yeah. I didn't see that was going to happen no, the way I thought all, it was. Not at all. Not at all. It, it was funny because. Um, like I had, like I, I have these little micro ones, you know, these little micro ones. Like, uh, like a big rite of passage for me, I believe, was actually it had, like the first one I think happened at Buds, and and it was, um, it was in, during Hell Week, and we were, we were going through naked surf culture back in the day when we were naked, and um, before the before the Hell Week started, my boat crew and I, uh, we all sat down and we had this, we made this pact: we're not gonna let anybody in our boat crew quit. Everybody's gonna make it through Hell Week. We're not quitting during Hell Week. And so we all kind of like made this blood pack. It was like, yeah. And then breakout happens and Hell Week happens. And I think we're in like um, Wednesday night, I think it was, maybe Thursday night. I think it was Wednesday night. And it's, it's you know, it's the it sucks being out in the surf zone and it sucks being in the surf zone naked. And 
it was, you know, you're in there for a length of time that even though it's kind of hot outside, you're in the water long enough to where you're cold. And eventually that really sucks. And so one of the guys in my boat crew got up and he starts walking and we have these big berms to protect the compound from the surge during the winter. And we walked, the, the instructors would put us in and give us instructions that you must sing. If you don't sing, we'll come over this burn and the pain will follow. So um, he gets up and starts walking and I'm like, mm, no, no, that will not happen. And so I get up and I literally run from the surf line and he's like at the base of the burn. So I run up there and I just tackle him, just fucking straight up tackle him. And I got him by his ankle and I'm dragging him back to the surf zone. And um, like the class stopped singing because they were like, what the fuck's going on? So it got quiet and the instructors mm. came up over the burn. Mm. And I can only imagine what they saw, two naked guys, <laughs> one dragging the other one, the other one fighting, right? And so we got pulled up and I remember it was like, uh, they separated us and they were trying to figure out, you know, what was going on, who's, basically they knew one of us was wanting to quit. They just didn't know who. I mean, they had a good idea, but they wanted the guy to kind of come out and say it kind of thing. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And I remember I just stood my ground and like some of these guys were brutes back then when they, you know, they could still do the fun stuff. And uh, that, that first moment during that uh, melee of questioning that was happening, I remember they were just like, sharks just circling you like just all around and I just kind of stood there and kind of took it all and and I didn't take didn't think anything of it but they finally told me to go back to the surf so years later when um when I met one of the instructors that was at that moment he, he remembered that and he was like of course yeah of course and he was like so you know years later we can kind of talk and share stuff and whatnot and uh he said something to me that was kind of like it helped define that moment for me he's like at that moment I was, I was absolutely positive that you were going to make it through. There was no question in my mind that you would not have any, that you would have problems, obviously, going through buses, not easy, but that you would make it through without any issues. And I was like, dude, that's fucking pretty cool. So that, that to me, was like the first rite of passage that I had. When the, when it meant something. Like, our word stood for something. I'm not going to be a part of this. And nobody else in my boat crew got up to do it, too, which kind of pissed me off. But I just fucking got up, ran, tackled the dude, wrestled him to the ground, dragged him back to the surf, got him almost back to the surf, and then got busted. Did he quit? He did not. All right. Yeah. Oh, fuck. He he did. Wow. He he had really bad luck though. He had really bad luck because we got all the way to third phase in the island, and um, you know back then we had this king of the mountain kind of ordeal where after the instructors would go to sleep, the the class would muster down at the beach, and it would be boat crew versus boat crew. And the goal was to drag a member of the boat crew into the surf zone. And once you're in the surf zone, you have to stay in the surf zone. Couldn't leave. And last man standing was the winner, basically. And uh, we had some we had some beasts in our class. And one of the guys that we had uh, was a, like a fucking state champion wrestler that just was a mutant. <laughs> he was a mutant. And they got him. And he was also like a wrestler. He just wasn't a state champion wrestler. And so they got into a wrestling match on the on the on the sand and he ended up having his shoulder dislocated like 13 days before graduation mm. so he got rolled back to the beginning of the third phase and had to finish that off which is a I mean a royal kick in the nuts like the Daniel Craig kick in the nuts yeah you're like just put it back in <laughs> just fucking yank my arm <laughs> yeah nope and of course unfortunately we had to come up with a reason as to why the entire class was out of the surf zone well at first you know we all ran <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like fuck and 
unfortunately the class leader and the class LPO had to stick around and explain how this happened. And uh, needless to say, the, the beating was legendary. I remember that. That was a beating that lasted the rest of the night, all through the morning. Not fun. But it was worth it. Yeah, no. Sounds like a party. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like uh, the demographic that you said, it's big. Um, and, and it's really just people that you're looking to influence uh, with things that maybe their dads didn't teach them. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like a lot of Pretty stuff. Much. My dad would have enjoyed it. Yeah. We, well, want, uh, we want young guys, you know, claiming their masculinity. And we want old guys claiming uh, their paternity for these young men. Yeah. So we want to see all that come together in a healthy, ritualistic, rites of passage way. Yeah. In an interdisciplinary way. We want to see strong, well-adjusted, capable and, and, men. And that right there, strong, resilient. Yeah. All of that right there, I believe, is significantly lacking in our current state of the union. Really is. I mean, we've lost that because of one the political correctness. We've lost that because of male toxic, you know, male, you know, the, all the the hubbub about male toxicity. We've we've lost, um, in a sense, what it means to be a man, and and what what it means to be a man is not what many people think or what I believe many people use derogatorily to be a man. What do you think it, it means to be like? I mean, uh, you know, you turn on the news, you hear about, and what's amazing is if you don't watch the news, I never hear about any of this shit because I don't watch the news. Um, you know, I see it come through on social media, but I realize, and I, I posted this the other day, if you turn off the news and go talk to your neighbors, none of what they're propagating is even halfway true. <laughs> you know, this idea of toxic masculinity and this, like, I don't see this in any way. Right. And uh, um, I mean, it's not true in my household, uh, but um, I also don't have to go out and beat my chest about what a man is, you know? And it's like, uh, you know, uh, I was fortunate, as these people have heard fucking on this podcast a million times, I went to Berkeley and I was a classics major. So I was a rhetoric major and, uh, you know, we studied, um, you know, everything from like, uh, you know, the cynics to, you know. Um, My cousin was you know. a classics major at Florida State. Yeah. So uh, so I, I was like, it became super trendy for these people to be like, hey, we're going to quote Stoics. Yeah. But Seneca had the best one, which is don't argue about what a good man is. Just be a good man. Right. Okay. And Fair I've that. said that for years. It's like, like everybody knows what right and wrong is. Right, like, and uh, you know, every day you're encountered with right and wrong, and how you do this, whether it's interacting with your wife or your children, and this, and some things you do because they might not be the right thing, but you know, it's the thing that has to be done at that moment. I call that parenting. Where like, <laughs> you know, what's right and wrong, and your job is to teach your children what is right and wrong. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, it's, but you know, that's the that's the, the hat you wear as a dad, I guess, as a as a parent. But um, there's so much arguing, and like this is a big thing that I run into, is when I hear this stuff, I like to think I have a pretty good barometer, and none of this shit makes any sense to me. Where I hear it, and I'm like, I don't even know the alternate bizarro universe where this ever would make sense. Well, I think, you know, when when they talk about toxic masculinity, they look at the extreme, anecdotal, very local examples, like a, a Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. That that kind of thing, you know, which we would all agree, that's not cool. That's yeah. not good. That's horrible. Yeah, right? I mean, the guy's a piece of shit, piece and of shit. yeah, and and treated women poorly. And the he fact that well, he uh, but I mean, the fact that people like 
the Me Too thing was a little interesting, whereas uh, it actually was fucking good because it outed people like Weinstein and actually created this. But then, of course, then it got fucking weaponized, and then people were throwing it at everybody. But it really started because nobody believed these individuals, and this guy was a bad dude, and he got fucking outed. And you know what? I don't know a single man that would look at that and be like, that's that's okay. Right. And if he is, he's not my friend. Not at all. Or I don't want to assist him. What's also ironic about the Me Too movement is before we started saying hashtag, we called that some what? Yeah. So when you add that to me too, it becomes kind of like, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's. Uh, I get it. There's a lot of irony, uh, but uh, like, I always thought like, uh, you know, uh, you know, be a good person, you know, and, and everybody, you know, and there's always varying degrees. And I think what happens is, is that, like you said, Jeff, so much in your classes, it's so binary. It's black and white, zero one. But like, there's so many gray zones. Like, like uh, if I go out into a situation and I'm with my three kids and my wife, uh, my obligation is to them, first and foremost. So if I, you know something happens and I got to be a fucking asshole to somebody, it's not because I'm being an asshole. It's because these are the people I'm worried about. Sure. Yeah, your, and, your and reactions so like, yeah. maybe even be more extreme. You're yeah. gonna, you're either gonna take a lot more shit, or you're gonna be a lot quicker. Yeah. to action right well, just because I don't carry concealed with uh, by myself and I know this is weird but I only carry concealed when I'm with my family okay and I realize um, if I get into trouble and it's just me nobody's gonna rob me of the ability to remove their arms and beat them to death with it right. so <laughs> I don't even want that option and if somebody makes that mistake I'm like dude if you pull anything better than a, a, a fucking you know some big caliber we're gonna run into trouble right. But I always think about it like in terms of that situation. I know I can get away. I know I can talk my way out of stuff. I know I'll deal with any situation if it arises, whatever. Now all of a sudden you put me with these four people that I'm in charge of. And now all of a sudden now I'm thinking about like, all right, like who's this fucking asshole? How is this situation going to go down? How do I get them into a, you know, make sure that I do my job, which is to protect my family and get them home safely. So true. And uh, it's it's funny because my wife is like, how come you don't carry a gun by yourself? I'm like, because I'm not worried about myself. Yeah. You know, like, and, and I know that's so weird. People are tripped out. I'm like, because I'm only, I mean, at the, when I walk out, like, and I know this is stupid, like, I don't, um, you know, I know that I'm pretty good at navigating any situation, whether it be physical or talking or however it does. I can disarm, like you said, and, and get away. But you get into a situation where you're with loved ones and you're like, fuck, man, like, how is this going to go? I'm at Costco and some crazy shooter comes through. How do I get these people? Right. How do I get my family out the back door? So true. You know, one of the things, too, that I, have subscribed to probably in the last five, seven years. I can't remember exactly when I read this. Um, and I think it really kind of epitomizes what we're striving for, which is that you want to be dangerous. You, you want to be as dangerous as you possibly can, but you need to have voluntary control over that danger so that you never are afraid of it, but you have control over it. And I think that's what we, we've not seen and that's why you see, um, that's why you see active shooters at schools. That's why you see um, the crazy cancel culture uh, in public right now is because folks are not a- accustomed to to being dangerous and and being able to have control over that danger. So they they repress that in some respects, and it comes out in other forms. A bully, somebody that bullies some poor kid at school, that kid feels that the only way to to, to meet that bully is to come to school with the gun and shoot the school up. Yeah, that's so weird. I mean, don't, do, do you remember the, uh, the, the movie uh, My Bodyguard? Oh, yeah. yeah. Right, one of my favorite, it, it was on recently. With Adam. Yeah. Um, Adam. Uh, yeah. 
Beast. What was his uh, name? He was, yeah. mo- he was mother. He was mother. Yeah, yeah, he was right. animal mother. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite movies growing up. But the kid gets bullied, and then he finds a bigger kid. Adam and Baldwin. You, yeah. That's Adam it. Baldwin. Adam Baldwin. Yeah, it was 1980. Yeah. Shit, fuck no, I'm really dating myself. That's a movie right but, like, there. But, but that was the analogy. Like, uh, you know, like if you encounter the bully and, and I, dude, I got bullied. I mean, dude, I, uh, you know, freshman, sophomore in high school, there were older dudes on our football team that were fucking assholes yeah. and they bullied us and they fucked with us. And, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, you got to the point where you were older and it was, it was interesting for me. Um, I never really cared for bullies. Uh, I was always the one that was like, you know, fuck these guys. And, um, all of a sudden you get to a point where you're a senior and dudes that I, you know, all of a sudden were my age who had been bullied, start bullying other people. And yeah, I'm like, it's a hey, motherfucker, story. you didn't like it when they did it to us. Don't fucking treat people like that. Yeah. And so that was always a big deal for me. I'm like, and um, I always wondered too, and this is probably goes back to some of the bud stuff where, uh, you know, well, this is how I was treated. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe within like, you know, law enforcement uh-huh. or maybe within the Navy. Well, this is how I was treated. So this, therefore, this is how I have to treat people. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, we see this all the time with parenting. Oh, well, you know, uh, my dad used to beat the shit out of me, so I'm going to beat the shit beat out of my kids. And you're like, well, how did it make you feel? Yeah. You know, was it beneficial? Like, why? you don't have to extend that stuff. And uh, that's a big thing for me is like, you know, like uh, we all know what, what right and wrong is and the, you know, p- mistakes that maybe our parents made or how we were raised or whatever. Like, we don't have to continue to extend that shit no like um my dad was super smart uh but he was also extremely condescending <laughs> like condescending to the point where like it's it's sharpened my brother Weaponized it. oh dude my brothers and i are so quick in terms of like cutting and like dude just to tear people to fucking shreds because that's how my dad was like right. my dad would slip jabs on us where you'd like three days later you'd be like that old fucking man <laughs> i mean to, to the day he died but that was just part of the deal. And I remember my brother being like, you know, dad was uh, was super condescending. Like, make sure you don't treat, you're not condescending to, towards your kids. And he's like, you remember how it made us feel. Don't extend that shit. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, my brother's been a defense attorney and is, you know, uh, one of the most sought after dudes in California for all that criminal murder one stuff. And he's like, you know, the biggest problem I, I run into for a lot of my clients is they're just doing what happened to them later on. Like, hey, if this guy is an abuser or a rapist or something shit, something bad happened to him and he didn't have the intelligence or the wherewithal to not continue to just do what happened to him. And he's like, we see it in the gangs. The dad's in the gang. The kids are in the gang. However, this is the life they know. And he's like, that doesn't have to be your life. Breaking the cycle, man. Here's a uh, philosophical question for you, John. Do you think you can be a creative, inspired person without trauma? Um, I'll give you, uh, what is it? Um, you can't polish a gem without friction, and you can't become a man without trials. Pressure makes diamonds, yeah. something like that. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm nervous of a, a society where we remove all the, the trials and tribulations and pressure. Like, I mean, I, you need to have somebody go through some form of inferno, some form of virus. Now, do you, um, and we, we used to see this all the time in the NFL. So when I, when I went to the NFL, uh, I got interviewed, and my parents had been married 52 years, uh, you know, at the time, you know, let's say 40-something. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad was a successful attorney. Both went to college. I had two older brothers that both played college football, and now um, they went on and you know, my brother's a lawyer. My other brother went to law school and never practiced. Like, I, you know, I didn't come home. My dad didn't come home drunk and beat the shit out of us. Uh, so I grew up in this, you know, went to Berkeley, got multiple degrees. Uh, so when I would go to these, um, uh, like, meetings with the teams and the scouts would talk to you and ask you about how you grew up. And I remember one of the guys being like, shit, what the fuck are you here for? 
And I was like, why? And he's like, uh, you know, every guy that I've interviewed, you know, a single mother, alcoholic father, you know, this, I mean, the amount of trauma that these individuals, uh, you know, happened to them in these like arduous tales of growing up here and food stamps and this and, you know, in and out of shelters, like that's what makes these guys. Like how does some, you know, white middle-class kid from Palos Verdes go and think he's going to play in the NFL? Right. And I just looked at him and was like, um, I don't like to lose. <laughs> and uh, and, and um, I fucking enjoy violence. Um, you know, I've long said, Jeff's Jeff heard me say it on podcasts and, and different stuff. I was not what I would consider a football player by any means. I was just a master of violence. Right. Uh, I enjoyed the fact that I got paid money to dress up in a fancy outfit and go whoop some dudes' ass for three hours on TV every Sunday. And I didn't care if it was on a team, uh, on a field, or in a fucking back alley where it is. I just wanted to fucking kick somebody's ass. And so, like, there was no, like, coming up, like, hey, I got to do this so that my mom gets a car. I was like, dude, my parents already have their cars. It's a healthy expression. You found an outlet for something you were naturally predisposed to. Yeah, I like violence. And by the time you get into later age, you learn to manage it in a healthy way. And, and I got paid to lift weights career, and get really big and strong big, and right. extremely fucking agile yeah. and very, like, surgical and basically being able to inflict it. And then also, um, I find extreme like uh, calmness and quiet in the most stressful and, and violent of situations. Yeah. That's what so, I was saying. Like, yeah, like, yeah, like you get out to box, you go fight, or I, uh, every NFL game I played in, it was extremely, like everything happened in slow motion, it was very quiet. Right. And, and, it, 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 and it was calming, and I'll tell you this, since I've, like, I've retired 10 years, and I'm like, oh man, I wouldn't give a moment just to get put back in there for even just a moment for that right. level of clarity. Right. It's funny because like when you talk about the quiet, like... Um, I can I can vividly recall so many times approaching the target and just like I'm I'm nervous obviously I'm I'm wigged out in some cases but there was also a part of me that was very calm very calm and it was like I knew exactly what I had to do I had clarity on exactly what that was and I had nothing stopping me from doing it like once it was go it was the gates were open, run, do what you do. And, and like, I, I really, like, I, like when you say, if I can get that, if I can just get back in the game for just that clarity, I would yeah. do it. I'm the same way. Like, I sometimes search out, how can I find that clarity, that peace, that calmness in my head? And a lot of times where I find it is I find it, like, at, um, I find it under stress. Like, if I put myself in some really stressful situations, things just sort of all of a sudden calm down and I can see clearly and I, I don't know exactly how that came to be other than just experience being in it all the time and working at such a high level to get competent that it just became normal. That became my normal. So like when I talk about, you know, being dangerous and having voluntary control over that danger, that's what I'm talking about. It's like, okay, that calmness represents that voluntary line that I'm, I have a hold of and, you know, I can let it go at any moment and step across that line or I can stay on this side of the line knowing exactly what I'm capable of doing. What's the Jordan Peterson quote, a harmless man's not a good man? Yeah. yeah. Something and like I think that. actually- That's yeah. very apropos, you know? It, uh, mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, you saw this within law enforcement, like um, there's predators and there's prey. Right. And I'm sure you ran into people who were, you know, whether it be drug or maybe not even, just have a predatory mindset. And- I'll tell you, <clears throat> one, the uh, guy who used to, uh, he used to work for me. Um, he was one of our informants, and I first met him 
when I was a correctional officer with the Sheriff's Department for a couple of years. And uh, it, I'm, I'm gonna call him JT, That's, those are his initials, but um, JT was a black gangster disciple, allegedly, but he never really chose affiliation, but um, he used to really like raping young white kids that came into the jail. And you could always tell who coerced into sex because they'd, he'd make them shave their eyebrows, shave their head, and then take a large XXL um, T-shirt from, from the commissary, the canteen, split it down the middle, and then take like a little ribbon off the bottom and tie it around her waist and make them wear like a, like a woman's house coat. So that's how you knew who JT was fucking in the day room. You know, mm. was uh, with that, that he had an archetype. But anyway, he uh, some twisted shit right there. Well, it gets worse. There's a lot of thought going into that. It gets worse. So um, he was in a day room when I first came on with the sheriff's department in 1990, and he uh, tried to uh, put a shank in me in a big fight we had, and he didn't get close, but I caught him creeping, and uh, we jumped on him, and uh, he kind of had it palmed. There's no doubt. I mean, I knew he knew he was angling towards me, and uh, I probably pushed it further than I should have, and uh, I broke his arm. I didn't have to, but it did it. So, to make a point to him not to do that. Years later, he's back out on the street, and JT was known as, uh, as what was called a jack boy. I mean, he had jack other dope dealers. And he always knew who had dope and cash. And a lot of times he would come in, and as I went through my career, and eventually got to narcotics, he'd, he'd, he would show up, right? And want to give information uh, for, for various reasons, right? And there's an old adage, today's informant, tomorrow's defendant, you know, because they're all scumbags, sure. right? But anyway, he, um, he worked with us several times, and... I was the guy who wanted to work with, mainly. Because he had this weird respect for me that went back that day, I broke his arm in that day room. But I remember, and he made some good cases for us. He made a, he made a, he didn't directly make, make the case, but he made a case for us that turned four ounces of powder into uh, a 40 kilo D, uh, ultimately hit that we had, we eventually made through casework that started with him. So he was uh, g great informant. And sometimes, you know, he wanted to be paid and other times he just really didn't care. He was kind of ambivalent about it. It was, it was real weird how he worked in and out. But I remember debriefing him and, and as he got comfortable with me over the years, he used to tell me all kinds of heinous shit, right, about what he did and how he did. But he told me about <clears throat> hitting a Haitian dope dealer in uh, Ocala, Florida. And did a home invasion and uh, going there and they got him tied down, you know, uh, and he had a kit, JT had a kit with him and inside the kit were various things. You know, it's kind of a BTK, a bomb torture killer. Oh. But he's trying to get information about where the stash is at, right? And his favorite thing was, uh, he'd pull dude's pants down and he'd reach in the bag and he'd get a curl iron. He'd plug the curl iron in, you know, and uh, you know, show the guy a curl iron and 
most of the time the guy would let him know with a dope with a cash, whatever his hitting was. But uh, a couple times, you know, he had to use the curling iron and he laughed and he said, I never had to stick it in more than once, Craig. So that guy worked for me for a while. And eventually, one night, it's <clears throat> after I retired, I think like 2012, got all cracked up and uh, there was a 50-something-year-old paraplegic woman who was a scumbag and smoking crack. Um, he home invaded her with this other chick and uh, ended up uh, taking a butcher knife and a butcher block and literally like alligator style decapitating her while he was, uh, you know, just went a little overboard that night, trying to find the dope, trying to find the cash. I think it was worth about dope that night, but he, uh, he got convicted of a murder. So that guy used to work for me <coughs> and worked for me at various times. Um, that's a bad guy. Yeah. That's a real bad guy. That's not some disadvantaged dude down on his luck, you know. He, he was in and out of addiction, but, you know, he had, he had to get clean when he came in jail, you know. I mean, he's just a fucking bad guy. And there were quite a few of those throughout my career that I interacted with. And, you know, when, when, you, when you're around people like that, you realize, okay, there is right wrong. You know, and, and, and the whole modern moral relevancy thing that we have going right now is incredibly troubling because you know a lot of people I think more people than ever would look at a guy like that and say it's not a bad guy it's just a you know disadvantaged disadvantaged misunderstood circumstance no he's a fucking bad guy that's a bad guy yeah you know anybody's gonna anybody that can come up with putting a curling iron in your ass right to elicit information right it's a fucking bad guy he was anybody that decapitates you know, a paraplegic woman, scumbag or not, and she was, she was a scumbag. Okay, it was scumbag and scumbag stuff. But still them all, took her head off, sawed it off, like cartel style, mm. you know? So, yeah, I, you know, I had all kinds of people like that in my law enforcement career that I spent a lot of time with, you know? And, you know, the lessons that you get really hanging out with those people, that's, Huh. That 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 informs a lot. That does. That informs. You know what? Probably need to have it done. You know what? Probably need to. You know, probably need a at least a four hundred pound deadlift. You know, yeah. cold. At least a four hundred pound. Probably need some jujitsu. Yeah. Probably probably need to know how to fucking hit people. You know. So yeah, yeah. There were uh, there there were all kinds of, you know. Uh, people like that that I, I came up with and I know we went real far off. No, it's, it's <laughs> good though. I, 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 I was wondering where you were going. No, it's, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's, like, the variety strata. Well, but I, I think people live in a, in, in a kind of an unworld, uh, I guess like an unrealistic expectation and it feels like the people that are the biggest propagators of this are the people that are most like disconnected from this stuff. Correct. So true. And it's like, oh, you know, because it's really easy to to basically, you know, judge and to, you know, point fingers and more importantly, like, oh, no, from your ivory tower. Right. And you're like, go down and deal with these people. And well, like, you know, like, I mean, it, like that's a, that's an incredible story and people in their minds are like, they think, oh, this can't be true. This sounds like something out of a movie. And you're like, uh, like, like my brother would come home um, and he was doing a bunch of gang stuff. 
uh, in Orange County and he brought me all this. Um, we were going over a bunch of like the Mexican mob. So he brought on like all these cases and he'd come over and be like, hey, check this shit out. And we would just read it. And like uh, all the Mexican mob stuff with like, um, you know, like worshiping Satan and like all that demonic shit with the skulls and, you know, all this like really interesting like ritual killings and this. And like he's going through this shit and he's like, this isn't anything that any normal human being could even look at and fucking wrap their head around. And he goes, and there's people that are like, they're not bad people. And it's like, they hang bodies. Like in Juarez, they hang bodies for, you know, for the border patrol to see off of, um, uh, overpasses, right. yeah. you know, and just like reading all this shit. And I'm like, man, there's, there are bad fucking people in the world. Or, or here's the thing, you know, um, how divorced are we from that? Right. Because, I mean, how different is that than, than, you know, their ancestors, Aztecs and Mayans, ripping hearts out? Yeah. You know. Or like building a new temple and, ba- and bathing the temple in blood and by uh, executing 30,000 people in a single day. How divorced are we from, you know, the visceral reality of human nature or the visceral realities of human nature? I think I, we've done a lot of ascension. Craig, I have one question for you. Like, what is your take on the people to say, hey, we're peaceful protesters believe in this and then somebody opposes them and they result to violence like taking a bike lock to somebody when what, they're what standing yeah the, they're like not, help help me understand what the hell's going I, on in their I head think, i don't think i don't think they're peaceful protesters by any stretch of the imagination i and but they'll claim to I, be i think well, yeah, and, it's, and the, it's, well that's the first plausible question. denial that's the first question do they know what they're doing or not Right? Or do they or, or do they actually believe that? I think it's a little of both. I think there are people who really believe they're peacefully protesting and have such a skewed view of reality in the world and and are so um, we were talking about earlier, just as a quick aside, you know, what does it mean to be a man? Right? Well, David Data. If you've ever done any, uh, looked at anything he's written, written a lot about masculinity, one of the things Data talks about is purpose. Mm. It's a big part of being a man, is having purpose. That's one of the big things that makes men attractive to women, right, is purpose. So I think we've seen waning or, or you know, a, lot, a lot of purposelessness with younger men, they're trying to figure it out. So they latch onto this. Now they have purpose. That's become their purpose. And they believe in it. And they're looking for something to believe in. So they're those people. And I think there are other people who know this is a means to an end, you mm-hmm. know? And we're, we, we know that we are hardcore Marxists uh-huh. and all of this stuff is just a way to, this is a means to it. I think they know that, that. So I think it's a combination of that. But when you're confronted by a peaceful protester who's screaming in your face and uh, people are videoing and, and the problem is now, especially if we look at a place like Austin, you know, they're getting ready to prosecute that soldier, right? Or they've indicted him. Oh, you mean the guy who uh, the, shot the yeah the Uber protest. driver? Yeah, the Uber driver. They're they're they he got indicted. Nope. Travis County. You didn't hear that? No. Oh yeah, Travis County. Travis County uh, grand jury indicted him. Wow. Now, 
I know this. I mean, you can die in a ham sandwich, right? It's got to get to trial, and hopefully, uh, we'll we'll see what. It, but hopefully, that the the community will do the right thing. I just picked Maybe up on that. You can indict a ham sandwich. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's the old adage. Well, so I mean, what's amazing? Anything, anybody for anything. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, they can file, it. and and with, with enough political pressure, they can file anything. Well, and, and a jury doesn't know. I mean, yeah. I, can, I can remember presenting cases right for a grand jury, you know, and uh, I, I can remember prosecutors going like that with the grand jury, going because they don't know. They don't know the elements of a crime, you know. They don't know. Okay, should this be a should this be a possession? case or a possession with intent to distribute what makes the intention to distribute you know well we've got you know bands and the dose broken down into baggies is obviously not it's not personal use blah 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 but, you know we have to present all these elements but still in all they don't they don't really know that you know so what are they looking for they're looking to a nod from a prosecutor right an attorney and that's the way it always goes what's that's going the through the, the guy that you got killed at the protest the, the the interesting thing about that guy who got shot uh they have him interviewed with this ak-47 slung around his neck yeah. and he's holding it like you know i mean it's positioned in a sling he's got his hand he's the there. rough story i got is that the soldier and i do not have the details the rough story i got was that the soldier perceived the guy with the AK mounting the gun on him. Yeah. Well, That's so what made he was the Uber driver, or at least the way that I saw it. He was the Uber driver, gets in a, the wrong spot, right. and all of a sudden sees this guy in an aggressive position coming up to the car yep. with an AK-47. Yep. What's amazing, though, is the dude drew and was able to shoot and kill him, mm. and that dude never got it. Like, it's, it, like, unbelievable. Apparently with the Uber driver, um, there's some social media posts that are allegedly, you know, not favorable right in his way. Oh. Well, you know, or you know, what, however you want to. But they're already, they're already starting the character assassination. Sure. You know, they're already it, showing it, tweets or whatever Facebook postings. I'm starting to see that come up. So my point in all this is, you know, to, to get back to what you're saying, what, what do I think about that? I think the only, first of all, the only way to really win the game is not to play. That's the bottom line. You know, you've got true believers, you've got people who are not true believers, who are, are have, a, have an ulterior motive and agenda, you know, anarchy, chaos, ultimate, you know, uh, destabilizing everything. Um, they're, they're supported by activist mayors and DAs, you know, so even if you do follow traditional, you know, self-defense law that things were okay 20 years ago or not now, uh, and, and even if you do win a case legally, um, what happens in the aftermath when you're docked and people show up to your house? So I don't think there's a win there. Uh, I, I think the only way to win is not to play. Period. Yeah, don't get yourself. Um, yeah. and, and it's hard. It, and with the way they're as aggressive as they are, the way they're doing, it could be really hard not to play. I mean, what do you do when you're with your kids? You know, you're boxed in traffic and they, and they flatten one of your tires and banging on you. What, what do you do? And how do you not perceive that as, you know... Some form of threat? Some form of threat. How do you perceive it? How, how is that called? I, I think the most famous meme now is the uh, the reporter talking about mostly peaceful protest in, in, with the flames of Minneapolis, I believe, mm, yeah. in the background. Yeah. Where he actually says that. You know, it's like... So, I, I don't know, to, to answer your question, I don't think there's a good answer there. And uh, certainly as trainers... 
it constantly forces us to reevaluate our tactics, our TTBs. I think even now, the idea of um, avoidance and deselection more than ever, not getting selected in the first place, deselecting yourself out of a, a, a blooming event. I think those skills, more so than marksmanship, are even more powerful. So as far as learning that stuff. In in the the uh, the way that I kind of brief it, when we're doing the force on force, and we don't do any any protests in the force on force because I um, my first stance is that you you should avoid them, even though it's your constitutional right to assemble and peacefully protest. Um, these are not peaceful protests. We have to call them what they are, which is they are propaganda for a an agenda that goes against the very fiber of our country. So I have no no qualms about calling that straight up. Um, you, if you knowingly go to a protest, you've put yourself in legal jeopardy because whether or not you can justify your actions, the very fact of the matter is that you knowingly went to a protest and that is gonna be hard to change in the legal defense. That's gonna be hard for you to overcome. All of your actions, whether you were justified in, in doing what you did are all gonna be precluded by the fact that you made a choice to go to one of those events, simple as that. So I couldn't agree more with Craig on the fact that don't go. You know, John Farnham has a great saying, don't go to stupid places where stupid people hang out and do stupid things. It's just that simple, right? Just avoid going to those. And that really kind of pisses me off because it's robbing us from something that's constitutionally protected, which is to peacefully assemble. It really is. And, the, and there are plenty of times where we should peacefully assemble to make our points known. But what has happened in the most recent times is that the vehicle for that has been retarded. And it is now used for political means only. And, uh, and, and, and an anti-political means, what I, what I really should say, because what people are using, they know that there is going to be media there. They know, I mean, we know, we've collected information, intelligence has been gathered from the instigators and the provocateurs that are actually there for one reason only, which is to promote one viewpoint to the general public. And we know also that the media is capitalizing on that and they are only projecting that one voice. They're not like the meme, uh, you know, mostly peaceful protests, right? When the entire city is burning to the ground. But we don't see that, we don't know that because the media, or what I like to call uh, the corporate entertainment channel, no longer the media, the corporate entertainment channel is now promoting only what benefits them and the corporate bottom line. Uh, what do you feel about the um, Texas becoming a constitutional carry state? Well, I think it's a great thing, first of all. I know that a lot of people are upset about it. I tell them that um, a, uh, you know, if you have to ask permission, it's not a right. Okay, so all the constitutional carry does is it recognizes that this is a right that you can exercise. That's it. It does lay some groundwork for some other things. And what I tell people about constitutional carry is that just because it's there doesn't mean that you should not consider getting your LTC or your license to carry because that still has a lot of value. It's still going to be there. The LTC is not going away. Oh, okay. The LTC so. is not going away. That's a big misconception. No, it's not. It's going to be here. And the reason for it is for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's in our best interest to see the LTC continue to be in play because one of the best things that the LTC does for you is it allows you to walk into a gun store 
and purchase a firearm without a weight. Sure. You can just go in, purchase, show your LTC card, and you're good. A second thing that is valuable is that going through the LTC process, you learn about, and at, a, at, the, at the very smallest level, you learn about the law. What you can, can't do, what you should and shouldn't do. Yeah, like you I can't find. walk into a into a exactly. bar that's selling fifty one percent alcohol exactly. with a gun. All of I that. mean, there's that like like that was the biggest thing I was nervous about with this uh, sure. you know constitutional carry is having people go in places that you know because I mean it in is. that class they like coming from California I had a concealed weapons permit in California coming to Texas it was really interesting to sit in that class which I did at your spot at the range yeah. and uh, learn about Texas Texan. Texas's view of this yeah. and where a gun can and can't go sure. and here and there and it was like I thought that was really interesting like hey if you're going to go out and have some drinks um, don't even put it in your car like you know leave it at home it's or true. if you're going into this place or if they're selling food and you know it just you just have to be a little bit more mindful yeah. but that's the thing the, the courts are looking at you as being you're up you're a little bit level up and more responsible now the third reason why it's valuable is that the LTC provides you with reciprocity so if you travel out of the state of Texas and you go to a state that has reciprocity with the state, you wouldn't be able to carry in there constitutionally, sure. unless that state was also constitutional carry, which is nice. We're seeing 21 states right now legally transition to that. Uh, when we get to 25, I think it's going to be a very interesting landscape. That will be very interesting to see that. Is there... Um... I understand why our, our founding fathers wrote the Second Amendment. I mean, you know, it's pretty obvious. Like, you know, you give people, uh, you know, the First Amendment, you know, right to free speech, and then you give them the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms to protect the First Amendment. Kind of makes true. it always made sense to me in that way. But uh, what it's a little scary for me is the lack of training. That it's not as if like, and to think if every gun owner reached out to a Craig and a Jeff, uh, they would be so far along. But obviously, right. they're not doing it. So what kind of makes me a little nervous, and I remember telling you my story of uh, going for my concealed weapons permit in California, and uh, uh, the guys going through the class having zero experience, uh, which blows my fucking mind, with weapons, and the guy almost basically shooting the instructor right. in like an accidental discharge and this whole deal. And I, I think I called Jeff on the way home, and I'm like, <laughs> I believe in this is the Second Amendment, right. but uh, there needs to be a basic intelligence test or just yeah. a basic competency test. How many people do you know that shouldn't have a driver's license? Yeah. Much uh, less a <laughs> uh, dude, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, like, uh, like, like no. to get a driver's license, you should be able right. to change your own oil and be able to change a change tire. tire. Right? Sure. Like, you should be able to do some regular maintenance. Like, hey, this is how my oil, uh, oil change goes. This is how I change a tire. Like, this is where the hood release is. Like, you should have to be right. proficient in, like, what your car can do and how you service it to get And this is purely just me. Uh, I think with a gun, you should be able to not only show somebody how you load it, how you take it apart, but be proficient in how you use it. But then you get into this slippery slope, like, how do you regulate it? We have 330 million people. Well, so I, I get mean, it. But there needs to be, uh, like, a basic common knowledge like we have to go to a hunter safety class for me to shoot something yeah right and you go to hunter safety class and you go through all this and you sit in there and you're like okay great i did it once um i didn't learn to hunt in a hunter safety class but uh like you have to still go through that process you and know? driving is not a right and it's a privilege enumerated in one through ten yeah. right i know so so arms is. so so this so is it's, this it's is the slippery the, slope. That's part of the American. But you know, but well, don't but don't you think our founding right? fathers, when they wrote this, think about 1776. Totally uh, yeah. uh, like like the you know I guarantee every single one of them had a garden. Every single one of them hunted. They were proficient with firearms. Sure. They had fought Indians. They had fought redcoats. It was a necessary. They, it it, was well, a necessary. they were actually uh, proficient. Probably every one of them had you know had uh, you know been in the military. Right. I mean uh, the army had you know this. I mean, 
like like these were individuals that if we met them today would be perfect be like i can't believe how fucking unadepted you guys are living off right what oh, you yeah. have well right. the 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 idea because i i do understand what you're saying and i recognize that that is and that can be that can be a major counterpoint to why people shouldn't own guns because they should be able to prove competency they should be able to do this so I'm careful about how I answer that because I don't want it to come across as being anti-gun. And which we're not anti-gun. But we have to be so clear. And we're not anti-constitution or this other stuff. But we want to make sure that that is a point that we state because I will tell you that in these conversations, I've had these words thrown back at me. Oh, you're anti-gun, you're anti-this. I mean, I have friends that say things that have them held over their heads. So for everybody listening, we are not. Everybody in this room, anybody in our our socials, anybody in our social circles is all very much pro all of this. So the, the problem is this, is like, um, I, 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 like from, a, from one point of view, I would love to see people more competent, more knowledgeable, and, and in essence, safer with a firearm. I would love to see that. Um, the problem with that is that it encroaches on a constitutional right that is difficult to put in context without restricting its its freedom to be used. And there are all kinds of ideas of freedom that are problematic in practice. For you sure. Know, guns being one. Here's another one. You know, um, do you believe fundamentally that you should be able to put whatever you want in your body? I, I believe... Sounds good, right? Yeah. I don't care about... You know what you do and what you don't do as far as what kind of substance you put in your body your mouth your nose your vein well i mean that this, sounds good this right? is a good one for you uh as you know former you know narcotics this um we lost the war on drugs i mean the uh the amount of money and like all we've done is made the cartels richer uh i'm at the point where i'm like i think we've lost this uh what happens if they legalize it all right and they let people make their own decision as adults the problem, though, is then those individuals are going to become burdens of this state when all of a sudden they fucking, uh, you know, are like the living dead walking around. Seattle's a good test case yeah. for that. Yeah, it is. Oh, no. If you watch Seattle's dying in the follow-up, uh, and that's done by a local KXEN show, a local uh, news station. Well, news Ka- station uh, Callie, who works on this podcast, she's a Seattle PD. And, so, and we've had long conversations of she literally is like fucking zombies wandering around even the addicts are saying the only thing that got me off the streets was jail yeah that's the only thing that got me off the streets yeah. was being sent to jail you know and um like i said you know that that sounds when you when you phrase it that way when you say you know you want you to be able to, as a human as a free human right you should be able to put whatever you want to in your body you know and you hear that argument you want yeah you know, while you're not hurting anybody, caused yeah. any harm, right? No personal damage, no, you know, no, no, no personal victimization, uh, no, no property, anything. If I should be able to put whatever I want in my body. Sounds like a good idea. And then there's the practice of it. Yeah. What does that look like? Look like, yeah. you know. Um, I, I'll say this from my own personal experience working dope for 11 years. I, I, don't, I can't recall the a family member of any addict who's pro-legalization who believed that we should stop fighting the war on drugs 
And that's an interesting perspective, too. It's a very right? and, and I, I, to be honest with you, kind of like you, I mean, I'm just naturally attracted to the violence. I mean, I didn't join, you know, narcotics because... You thought you were going to make a difference. And, no. No. <laughs> no, and, and, and... Because that's where the fucking bad guys are. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. I, I mean, don't care what they're doing. I mean, back in Prohibition, it would have been alcohol. Yeah. I don't care. That's where the fucking bad guys are. Like, it's That's such a... where the action is. It's such a weird, yeah. like, weird dichotomy of, like, uh, free choice. Yep. So, like, you know, like, uh, America, like... It, so, what always fascinates me is you, over 200 years ago, you had these individuals that were able to write a document that has been, for the most part, I mean, fucking bastardized in a million different ways, uh, but has allowed this country to grow from... You know, let's say a few hundred thousand to 330 million people and govern itself and the power of the straits. I mean, super ingenious. The most successful well, country for the yeah. longest time. period of time. Yeah, the longest democracy has ever existed. On, yeah. on, and, on the planet. And these individuals had the foresight to create this and put all these checks and balances. You know, but then you look at like, uh, you know, everything that they preached against happening has eventually happened. Right. I mean, sure. uh, you know, they fought against a centralized bank and a, a standing army were the two things that they yep. were like, as long as we don't have a centralized bank and we don't have a standing army, we'll be fine. Well, you look at the Fed and you look at the standardized bank and you look at, uh, you know, the standing army. I mean, all of these things, uh-huh. like if you go back, our founding fathers, like there were literally lines in the sand <laughs> that they said, you cannot have this and be successful. And we have all this stuff. Right. You know, and it's how how far away from the original vision have we departed, and does that make and and other people would say you're anti-constitutionalists. Does that make the document even relevant anymore? And should we change it? Well, I mean, if you, you know? uh, those guys were big uh, uh, fans of John Locke. He was extremely right. there, and he talked a lot about the social right. contract and the yeah. idea that when the social contract no longer benefits both parties, it becomes null and void. Yep. So based upon you know if you if, if you were to say John Locke is the is you know, the lens that we look through, you would say that basically the social contract and what we've agreed to, because if you're born into this country, you're born into this social contract, you're born here, all of a sudden you have to follow the laws, you have to live in society, you have to pay taxes, that's the social contract. Uh, and it's so much so we get a social security number, which is our receipt of the, of, of the contract. Yep. And uh, people would say, based on John Locke, like it no longer benefits both sides of the equation. And both sides are talking about that. That's what's interesting as far as... Yeah, I'm not sure I want to really be considered part of the same nation as those people. Yeah. You know, we're seeing, you know, the the, 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 the culture war, if you will, and how that affects geography. You know, that's uh, that's interesting to me. I think Texas will always be its own place. But well, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think anybody wants to see the balkanization of America. Uh, there's a pretty interesting I've, book on it. Yeah, and, there are uh, a couple. Yeah, uh, about basically splitting it up into different regions yep. and like being like, hey, you know what? Like, if you're going to pay reparations, then you know what? You're going to give it to these individuals and how they break up the United States into actually multiple countries. Right. And you're like, hey, let these people believe, you know, and let people migrate to places that they feel are more similar to how they want to live their lives. Yeah, and maybe the U.S. starts to look more and more like Europe yeah. in that regard. You know, there's a loose coalition. You know, there's an EU, but, you know, you still have sovereign nations, more or less. You know, even and that, that one's debatable, right, as well, far as the EU goes. Uh, so my mom is a little older than 80, and uh, we were kind of talking about, um, I'm like, Mom, what do you think about all this? And she's like, you guys should have been around in the 60s. Huh. She's like, you think this fucking stuff is bad? You think um, the way this? Right. And she's like, you should have been, uh, like, 
we didn't even have social media. And she's like, you know, she lived in San Francisco in the 60s. She's right. from Canada and worked for an architect. And she's like the protests and the burn. She's like, what we saw in the 60s, she's like, I don't know if it was different now that I'm older and I'm seeing it in a different way. But she's like, that was fucking awful. Uh, a country divided and this and Vietnam and the way they were treating people. She's like, this this is just a different agenda. <laughs> okay. But she's like, it, it, you should have seen that shit. That was scary. And so th I thought that was an interesting perspective because we always just assume whatever we're going through it's is the, the most, worst. It's the worst. It's the pinnacle. Yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, think and about the Civil that, War, that, right? Think right. about the Civil War where you have, you right. know, I mean, they called it, the, I mean, there was nothing civil about that war right. where, you know, they had, I mean, like half of the people died from dysentery. I mean, they're fighting against their neighbors, you know, whatever side of the line you sat on is where you joined. I mean, uh, fucking like the stories of the Civil War and the, the, the conditions and the atrocities and the horrendous wars, you know, 60,000 people dead in a day you know, bodies in this. I mean, it's so far beyond. I mean, we read about it like it's some story you see where you see glory and you're like, oh, look at that. And then you realize when you read the accounts, you're like, man, like, the, uh, it, like is this the worst that we're going through? I mean, our, our country has gone through so much at this time. This yeah. just feels like another piece to it. Well, what's funny is when you take a second to realize that like when we were growing up, we all got a chance to experience the most marvelous contraption to, to that we knew of, the microwave, right? The microwave was kind of like a big thing when I grew I remember when our house got the first, we got our first microwave and it, how it cooked and how it made everything so much easier. And like when I tried to tell my kids that, I was like, yeah, there was a time when the internet didn't exist. I, I remember the remote the clicker. for the TV. Remember the clicker? That had two paddle switches and you'd click it and you'd literally see the whole TV shake and go, so, so I still call the remote control the clicker because the one that right. we had, it right. would go click, click, click. Yeah. click. Yeah. So my kids call it the clicker. Right. And, uh, and, and it was funny. My, uh, my, or my daughter's like, where's the clicker? And my wife's like, why do you call it the clicker? She's like, I don't know. Dad calls it the clicker. Mm -hmm. And they had no concept. Uh, like, cause maybe because maybe because you click something. I'm like, no, no, no. Uh, and before we got that, you know who the clicker was? You. you. Me. You, the youngest I had brother. To, yeah, the youngest brother. I had to sit you right next to it. Yeah. And then they would yell at me, and then I would have to change, change the deal. TV. Yeah, right. change the next channel. Go go slower. Yeah. Well, a friend of mine who's a therapist uh, told, told a funny story here a while back about having a young 20-something. And he's got, 20, got 25 years. But he makes a remark. He said, I don't want to sound like a broken record. And the kid said, a broken record of what? <laughs> Oh, no. it's, it's funny. Yeah. No, I mean, sit, sit, sitting in there, I remember my brother had a record player. Right. Uh, we would sit there and watch the records, and he would fucking lose his mind if we didn't, like, drop it on there just right. right we right. scratch his record. Right. And, like, sitting in there just watching the record. You dropped listen. it by hand. Yeah. Do, yeah, you had to do, like, the little thing. And if, yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. I think perspective is a big thing that we sometimes lose sight of. Like, like we are living in unprecedented times in many accounts. The advances in medicine, the advances in technology, we're living longer, we're experiencing more things that we hadn't been able to experience before, but yet we somehow latch on to some of the negative, some of the bad things. And but I'm isn't that human nature? It is, and that's the thing. I'm I like, mean, that's human it, nature. It, 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 and it's part of what helps us to continue to strive for success, sure. is that we recognize the bad shit, and we try to move forward and try to advance and try to do this. So, like, when I was talking to the kiddos about, like, there was a time when they the internet didn't exist and what we did for like entertainment and how we kept ourselves busy. Lincoln Logs. Legos. My son still plays with Legos. I mean, I, I, I'm like, like, it's hard for them to understand that. It's hard. So I can appreciate like watching their... Well, think about this, right? Uh, you can, 
I don't care what it is, you can find somebody teaching a tutorial on something on YouTube. Mm -hmm. I don't give a shit. Like, like there's plenty of things that are, that have happened around here. But like, I don't know exactly how to do that. And I'll watch something on YouTube and I'll knock it out of the park. Yeah. Yep. Uh, what did we do before YouTube? You know, you did. You had to. I, I, I remember calling my dad and asking him a question. And he's like, "You have a college degree. Go figure it out." <laughs> yeah, I was right. like, "Fuck you." We were just Jamie you and know? I were just talking about this, like how whenever, like, uh, like my whenever I'd ask my dad a question about something, he'd be like, "Go look it up." Yeah, do you remember? There was we a, had an encyclopedia. Yeah. Yeah. We had an encyclopedia. We saw the the row of encyclopedia like Britannica. I had a set of those, and so Jamie and I were laughing our asses off, like, yeah. "Yeah, you know, now you know, like, you know, she was having a hard time with her son trying to fix something, and 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 she's like, like, like the, when he texted, her response back was, Google it, <laughs> you know, like that's our response to right. encyclopedia. Go look it up in the encyclopedia." Because I can remember, like, and it used to infuriate me, and I'd be like, Dad, just tell me what the answer is. And be like, yeah, the an I'll tell you the answer. The answer's over there in those books. Go look it up. So my dad would, uh, <laughs> he, he was real big on, and I remember uh, Luke got pissed at me once. He's like, why can't you just, because he asked me a question. I'm like, oh my God, that's not how I was raised. My dad would be like, let me take you and belittle you along the way on this journey. I'm showing you how to fucking execute this. Like, it, it, it was like, everything was like a, like a teaching moment right. that he would get some, oh, like, yeah. but... But uh, invariably, you end up learning how to do shit, and you learn a system for things in here, and like he's like a, a he's master. like a malevolent master po. Ah, oh, my dad was really smart, food, man. He, right? uh, so a... so my dad graduated high school at sixteen, okay. so he graduated two years early. Graduated like college at twenty, uh, law school at twenty two. Jeez, I mean, just super smart. I remember uh, in college, I had a class, uh, political science class, and we were discussing McCarthyism, and I called him, and I was like, Dad, I got this, uh, you know, we're just we're just fear and like how they were able to use fear as this ability to get other people to like, you know, do things and sell people out. And what, you mean like a pandemic? Well, and but what's even more amazing is history made McCarthy true. Yeah. So that was a big thing that we talked about is he right. goes, there was this fear and the red scare and the whole thing. And he's like, it wasn't until just a couple of years ago, I remember my dad and I talking about it. He's like, McCarthy was actually right. Here we are. Yeah. I mean, so they, they had the red scare, they fucking painted him bad, and then 40, 50 years later, they realized McCarthy was fucking on point. Yeah. Um, but as, long story short, um, as we were getting into it, he's like, there's this book, he's like, it's right around page 63, there's a par you know, paragraph, and he kind of recited it to me. And uh, uh, I like went and found the book, had to get it on, like, you know, go to the, the, the stacks, microfiche, the whole deal. Yeah. I find it, and I called him back, I'm like, Dad, what year did you read that book? He's like, 1974. So this had been thirty years later, and he still remembered the passage. Wow. So he had Brilliant. like a like not photographic memory, like a fucking it's an you know, autodidact. Yeah, he had the ability to retain information for long periods of time. Uh -huh. uh, my nephew's the same way, okay. like same exact deal to the point. And my, my daughter's like it too. She she will like yeah. So it's pretty. <laughs> uh, it's a family trait. Thank God, or I, I didn't get it. Of course, <laughs> fucking the, thank the small God ones. Yeah, yeah. Thank God somebody got it. Uh, but like that type of like intelligence and that, and it's just you know like uh, I remember and we we had him on the podcast. My dad made a great point. Um, so my grandfather was an engineer, and he and all his brothers were engineers. So 1942, the uh, you know Pearl Harbor happens. We enter World War II, and uh, the war effort or was that 41. 41. Yeah, 41. I'm sorry. Yeah, so 41, and then uh, that happens, and all of a sudden they got on the radio, and it was like, we need engineers to come build. And he and his brothers all packed up their cars and drove from Kansas to Culver City, showed up at the McDonald's Douglas plant, one end, got jobs and home, and keys to their homes, and <laughs> went and moved into their little World War II homes in Culver City, 
and they went and built planes for the war effort. Yeah. Like they got in cars and just knew that and they stayed, had to get to California. And stayed in California. To, yeah, yeah, forever. Yeah. But my dad's like, can you imagine being six years old and your dad being like, everybody get in the car. We're going to California. They have jobs. You got to build planes. <laughs> and that was what he told them. And my granddad was like, it was part of the war effort. This yeah. is what you did. Yeah. And uh, we were engineers. They Amazing. needed engineers. They needed right. people like us. So we fucking went. And I, I just it. like, I, I, like it, it's just amazing to me that like these were the people that you know built the atom bomb and, yep. and did this and went here and the, you know stormed the beaches at Normandy like the greatest generation for a reason. Yeah. And uh, and now we have people that are arguing about fucking a bunch of nonsense that just feels like we don't have enough going on in their lives, so they're just creating that, fucking complexity. That's that's drama. They're just complete. They're just creating because drama. they're devoid of purpose. Purpose. That, yeah. They're devoid of purpose. And and it's also I, I have a, I have a sneaky suspicion that there's a lot of self-loathing going on, and they don't want to accept or acknowledge how their life is. You know how maybe maybe they're not where they want to be. Maybe they are not. Uh, maybe they're too challenged to enter the workforce, or maybe they just can't do this. And so rather than accept that and try to fix that, they just distract themselves with some some cause, some effort purpose to help them distract them from the real issues that they're having in their lives which are that they probably are not where they want to be or they thought it would be a lot easier or they thought the world should be fairer or they thought this or they thought think that about, think about radical islam i what mean is where are the recruiting grounds for that that starts you know starts horrendous on. you know violent poorer places yeah. right a, a friend of mine runs a uh, runs a uh, a non-profit you know, uh, and they focus on going after places where that, that are that are fertile for Islamic recruitment, right? Radical Islamic recruitment. Then they go to these places and they they create and they build infrastructure. So basically, they they do what missionaries historically have done. So trying to head them off at the pass without and and he. Where believes. do they recruit those around? Like 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 the the worst slums in the world is where they go. Yeah. The idea that uh, we know your life is in the toilet, but if you act in in uh, you know within Allah's interest, you'll be promised greatness in heaven, kind a of a deal. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. What it works. And that's and they they look to improve quality of life in places like that. You know, they've uh, I know in in a lot of places they've gone in, in Africa. You know, just their their presence there has uh, like you know really cut down on recruiting for you know Al Shabaab and Boko Haram places like that. You know, it's like. Things are kind of good here, you know. They came in, and you know, our water's better, our food's richer, and you know, we're more prosperous, and we're, we're doing okay. We don't, we don't need something to believe in. So, in the in the movie The Matrix, uh, like towards the, like I think it was in like the second or third movie, um, and it's funny, like uh, as we kind of get down this, all of a sudden these movies become, you know, these dystopian movies, whether it be like V for Vendetta. And I love with, dystopian oh, movies. Yeah. I, I do Everything's too. wrong. Yeah, like, it, like, Everything's like wrong. it's always a virus, you know, V yeah. for Vendetta, and you right. see that and you're like, wait a minute, this is so weird. But um, in The Matrix, when he goes and he meets the creator, you know, the source, yeah, yeah. and he's like the first iteration of this thing, we made everybody famous, everybody was cool, everybody, you know, they didn't want for anything, and the whole thing failed, and yeah. we lost a huge crop, and he's right. like, we had to bring in these different elements, and it's really uh, human nature. It is. And so it's like that, that to me is like one of those things where you're like, oh God, isn't that the truth? 
You know, people need, uh, and, and if they don't have any struggle or strife, they find ways to create it and it becomes manufactured. And I think a lot of this is just fucking boredom. Yeah. Which goes back to the question I asked you earlier about, do you think you can, do you think you can have an inspired creative person without trauma? I, I don't know if trauma is the good word, though. Uh, right, it may not be the right words. Well, it's like struggle, struggle, maybe pressure, struggle, pressure, pressure, struggle, yeah. pressure, pressure. Yeah, I like, a, you know, a, it goes back to our other favorite movie, Shawshank Redemption, oh, right? Man. You know, I mean, it's just the, you know, was it geology? It's a study of uh, time and pressure. Yeah. Right? You know, same thing. You know, yeah. time and pressure you know, will create a lot of stuff. Well, how do you get bigger and stronger, though? struggle with heavy yeah. shit right yeah every day and, repeatedly and with and consistency where, and, where, <laughs> and where do you get and and where do you where do you get stronger it's not in the act it's in the recovery right i i had a interesting conversation with uh doc parsley um we were talking about um uh like durability and some and some issues and the the reason it came up was i had my shoulder scoped about a little over a year ago and we had dr ants who was my doctor on and he did my surgery, and then he did a shoulder surgery of a kid who was a college football player right after me. And so um, he, like, cuts through. He does everything. He's going through it. And uh, then they worked on this kid after who was I'm 44. That kid was 21, so I'm more than half, double his age, um, about the same size. Uh, they, he said that the physical difference in not only the thickness of the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments, and everything were, like, like, so glaring that his support staff was like, what the fuck? And he's like, one-ton parts versus half-ton parts. Yeah. He's like, you can see the difference in just genetics and durability yeah. and, like, muscle thickness and density and Wolf's Law and, like, you know, ligaments and tendons. He's like, just the insertions in here. He's like, it was, like, one-ton parts versus half-ton parts. And he goes, and this is, like, and the one thing that he blew him away is um, he's like, and this kid was 21, you're 44, and he's like, the physical difference of durability was no question scaled on your side of right. this. And he's like, it just is it genetics? Is it training? Is it nutrition? And we kind of went through all this. I'm like, it's probably a combination of all of it. Right? Oh, yeah. But there's just certain people become more durable, and we've seen this over time. I mean, look at your job. I mean, it naturally selects for people that are okay with suffering. Yeah. I mean, there's really not like an athleticism component to Buds or being a SEAL. Just can you endure the suck, the suck longer than the next fucking guy and get him to, and he quits? That's what got me into powerlifting when I did my, my dive into powerlifting was. You know, I'd always been able to take a beating, but as I aged, I just could not. Yeah. You know, uh, the injuries got more pronounced and more severe in jiu-jitsu and on the mat. So I was like, man, I don't have enough armor on the chassis. Mm. So, you know, I, I found a local guy, happened to be a, a guy by the name of Richard Hawthorne, um, who's a, used to be a competitive power lifter, but uh, he's the guy that taught me the, the three lifts, you know. And, Richard's a pretty powerful dude. I mean, uh, he competed in Sydney at, I think, a body weight of 128, but he had a total of 1492, wow. you know, as a deadlift over 600 pounds at a body weight of 128. So he's got the top of his lifts and, you know, just got to be stronger and more durable and more resilient. So now when I go back to the mat, you know, I'm not getting busted up as more. My game has changed. I'm less of a bottom player than I'm a top player, you know, so... <laughs> It's well, you just become more efficient with age. Yeah, absolutely. And you realize, like, hey, these are the things I can do, and these are the things I can't. I'm right. just going to, like, stay in my little fucking yep. bubble. So when we, when we were building that, that program, I think the, the, like, the one thing I told you is I got, I've got to be injury-free. You know, I can't, I can't start something and, and screw myself up more. And, it, and what was funny is I can't remember exactly how you worded it, but it had something to do with we need to just, 
we need to strengthen your chassis, something along those lines. Yeah. You know, that's the secret. And we have to do it in a nice linear progression that, you know, builds upon. It's all product. based on Milo's bowl. It, 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 and, and right? it was, like Milo picked up a little calf, Milo got bigger, the calf got bigger. But I think the problem is, is that, um, you know, people think like uh, it's a sprint. And I'm like, dude, it's, it's yeah. time and pressure. Like how long, you know, and, and you think like, hey, I'm not strong today. I'm probably not going to be strong tomorrow, but I'm going to be strong in six months and a year from now. And then it's just consistency. So true. I'll tell you one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in, uh, you know, I don't know how long it's been, but um, like the the other component to all of this is patience. Yeah. Because patience for me was hard in the beginning. I wanted to have those heavy lifts. I wanted to get, you know, I wanted the barbell, you know, I wanted those things. And it took risking getting injured to finally kind of like slow myself down. And you know, now when I'm, when I'm approaching the bar and I'm looking at some of the videos from like three, five years ago, and I'm watching myself perform, I'm your older. Mo- your movement's actually a lot better. Oh, it's I, I, so I, I still love, yeah, like whenever you post something, I always watch it. And uh, not that I comment on it or this, <laughs> but God. I fucking, I, I see everything, right? But I'm like, you legitimately like move a lot better. Your rowing is so much better. Oh God, dude. I, t- I mean, uh, I was, you used to see I was a row, it was sandwich. like. I was a soup sandwich, yeah, dude. It's fucking it was, everywhere. It was terrible. But, I mean, the things that I have taken away from that time and pressure are to, to be patient. Like, nothing's going to come overnight. Nothing's going to happen. I'm not going to get to those big numbers in a year. I'm not going to get to them, you know, I'm not going to get to them in a month, much less a year. I've got to just, I've got to trust the process, commit to the process, and then just work hard. And I think one of the things that I love about the fitness aspect is that it, it is a daily struggle. It's a daily struggle to both mentally and physically, right? Because getting like this morning when I got out there and I was reading through the, the program, I'm like, oh, oh, you know, like, oh. but, you know, once I got through the strength and got into the Metcon, I'm, I'm like, like I'm realizing that what I'm doing right now at this moment is what defines me to a certain extent. Being willing to confront that discomfort, that pain, that 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 lingering question, oh, I could just stop right now. Like I got five rounds to do. Or nobody'll know I didn't do this today. Right, exactly. Right. Uh, you know, or I just got I'm just three rounds. I'm gonna do three instead of five. You know, all of those things. And and that is one of the things that I really appreciated about my fitness journey is that every time that I approach that workout, there is that lingering question, you know, and that I have to stave it off, you know, because as I'm getting older, they're getting harder. You know, like, I mean, I remember, like, just five years ago, competing, at, you know, in some of these sports or some of these events was, was challenging. Uh, now it's, it's really not, it's not in my best interest anymore. Really, it isn't. I mean, I have to scale now. I have to really rethink my, my workouts. And, well, and but, I, but, like, you're not, like, training isn't your job. Like, like, like your job right. requires fitness and proficiency and all the other things. The problem is if it gets too skewed one way and all of a sudden it negatively impacts you, like for example, you do something, your wrist gets fucked up and you can't draw and shoot. Now all of a sudden, now that negatively impacts you you know, what goal, you do. Goal hijacked. Yeah. yeah. It, it's like you go to jujitsu and some dude hijacked. fucks you up and you can't do your job. Right. Now all of a sudden you're like, uh, I just got hurt in training. This or doesn't dead, make sense. Or I'm deadlifting and I can't do jujitsu. Yeah. Right? You know, I blow something out of my back because I'm pushing so the treadmill too hard. And, and right. that, that has been one of the things that I have appreciated about the fitness journey is that I have to be honest with myself and I have to be respectful of the weight and I have to be respectful of who I am and what I'm capable of at this moment, which means there's a lot of self-reflection. I have to really kind of have to look at that weight that's listed and be like, mm, yeah, no, not today. You know, maybe sometime down the road, but definitely not today. 
And I, I, and I love that about this because, you know, what, what I think a lot of people don't recognize is that, and, and especially at an elite level of fitness, the cerebral component that goes along with it, not just in designing the program, but in actually doing it every day doing that programming or following the program. Maybe it's not every day, but following the program. So, you know, that's one of those things that I, I, I can geek out on, you know, really easily geek out on that sort of stuff and just like track my progress and look at what's happened and, and, and kind of recognize some of the, some of the things the the life lessons, if you will, like if my dad is listening to this podcast at some point and he hears me talk about how I have to develop patience, he will probably fucking have a, a, a <laughs> shift in. Yeah. because that was one of his things. That was one of his mantras. He's like, if you just take your time, you'll have time to do everything. And I'm like, fuck that. Time is for people who have, or, you know, patience is for people who have time to waste. You know, I got fucking no time for that. I got to fucking get shit done. Yeah. You know, and now I'm like sitting here, Andrew, you just need to be patient. It'll come, you know. So I'm like becoming my dad in that sense too. too well, to we, all, uh, we all become our parents, so which true. is kind of either scary or good, depending yeah. on how you look at it. Yeah. Garth Brooks said that. Oh, did he? <laughs> Garth Brooks said that. He oh said, you know, either the best thing that could happen is that you become your parents or the worst thing that could happen yeah. is that you become your parents. Well, so if uh, if people are interested in signing up for 12 Ladies, oh, yeah. where do they go? Uh, is there a website? I mean, yes. how, that, how yes. do they get more we information? Have a, we have a website at 12labors.com. We should be... Uh, it's uh, bare bones right now. You can sign up for it. We'll have all the uh, instructor, the, the instructors who are teaching and, and what they're teaching with a brief description out probably within the next three weeks. I would say so. Yeah. About the next three weeks, doing a hard push. And uh, yeah, man, uh, we, we, you know, we, we really want this to be successful. I think it will, and I think it's gonna, just going to grow over time. Because when I, I tell people the idea um, and, and really the place to talk about the idea is long-form communication like this. It's hard to have a blurb yeah. sure. about it. So that's been a challenge is what is it? Okay. Well, I think they're, it's like a gun training event. Yeah, well, yeah it's kind of. With, with cocktails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> five minutes were and relationship like advice. And fighting in cars. Well, I look forward to it, man. Yeah, man. Hey, well, dude, that's three hours, so uh, we don't want to keep you guys here anymore. Uh, but um, thank you so much for coming on Power Athlete Radio. It's always a pleasure to pleasure, sit down with you, Jeff and Craig. So thank you so much. It's great to thank connect. You, and uh, look forward to the 12 Labors here in Austin at the first week of December. That's right. Uh, where's it going to be at? Is it going to be the at the range? At the range at Austin. If you guys haven't been there, go check it out. It's a pretty epic Taj Mahal to weapons and shooting and whatnot, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Luke's. So. It's a Luke's range. Yeah. <laughs> it's a country club, I think is That's what they call true. it. That's true. That's what we used to call I'm it. I'm in. I'm in. Cool. So thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Craig Douglas on Instagram at the handle SouthNark. Until next time, bye!